Cocoa Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you are serious about your podcast hosting needs, you should check out Cyber Ears. Whether you are a podcaster, a radio host, a musician, a narrator, an audiobook author, or simply a school, church, corporation, or anyone else with an audio recording that needs to be hosted or distributed, you should check out CyberEars.com. Unlimited bandwidth, fast, reliable, and rugged servers with no hidden fees. CyberEars, your audio, your terms. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? Coco. Welcome, Coco Cruisers. You are listening to episode 59 of the Coco Crew Podcast. And then, of course, since we started at zero, this is our 60th episode. This is the end of our first five years as a podcast. How about Ooh. that? Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Yeah, that is. <laughs> uh, let's see. I, of course, uh, remain uh, John Linville. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm joined by, uh, of course, uh, Mr. Neil Blanchard. Hello, Neil. Hello, John. <laughs> uh, Mr. Mike Rowan, how are you doing, Mike? I'm doing well. Hello, Coco Cruisers. <laughs> Very good. And, of course, hello, Mr. Boise Pete. Uh, hello, and I do remain. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah, Boise, um, when we were first uh, b- bouncing around uh, that we might start a podcast, Boise was the one who said, well, if you do it, Make sure you do it for a while and actually, you know, have more than one or two episodes before you fade out. Follow. So I hope we have not disappointed on that one. I'm very happy. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, let's see. Moving on uh, to, let's see, Coco Fest. Well, yeah. Coco Fest should be 12 months away, give or take, except that, of course, Coco Fest. Despite whatever you might have heard, Coco Fest did not happen, has not happened, <laughs> because not Coco happen. Fest is a live and in-person event. Um, so we're, there's still talk that there will be a Coco Fest of some sort, if possible. Um, that's mostly talk. I'm not sure what's actually happening in that regard or what will be possible. Um, as, uh, you know, there's still a lot of people who talk about whether the country should remain closed or different states should remain closed for a longer time. Um, even if they do, even if things open up, it might still be a lot of scheduling difficulties and there's a lot to compete with that might actually want to have um, events that have been dis- uh, de- delayed or whatever. So we don't know if Cocoa Fest is is going to actually happen live and in person by Glenside this year. Um, I'd still like to see something happen. I'll try to make it if I can. Um, that that remains uh, well, it remains to be seen. 
Um, but what does not, uh, well, only somewhat, uh, you know, subject to, to circumstance, but only somewhat in doubt, uh, Tandy Assembly is approximately six months away. And um, uh, when I was joking, I guess we can call that Cocoa Fest now, since, uh, <laughs> or at least the Cocoa portion of it, um, since um, the uh, the usage of the term Cocoa Fest has uh, apparently been um, become a little looser. I don't know. Definitely planning to, to be in um, in Springfield, Ohio, um, in on the uh, Halloween weekend. <laughs> Let's see. What about what are we working on? Uh, who's who's working on projects recently? Any anything cool? Since the last time we talked, um, I did uh, get into some um, messing around with musical stuff uh, on the game master cartridge and. Uh, I released uh, to the community uh, um, a downloadable version of uh, Farfall with a different set of music, mostly um, mostly folk music and or uh, American standards or whatever. <laughs> um, a little bit of Reveille in there. And uh, uh, anyway, they've been available for download. I've publicized that in the Facebook uh, group for the, for the podcast. And there's been a... a a significant number of downloads. Uh, pretty pleased with that. I think people Sounds have been happy and using that either on their own Game Master cartridge or development kits or, or um, using one of the emulators like XROAR. Anyone else? What else have you guys been up to? So I've been uh, working on some new episodes of the Coco Collector. That's been fun. And also I have been working on OS9 for ARM on the oh, OS9 wow. Community Edition. That's not exactly Cocoa-related. It's ancil- ancillarily related, I guess you could say. But, uh, yeah. So uh, hopefully have some, uh, we'll have some news to announce on that by the time the next episode of the Cocoa Crew rolls around. Cool stuff. Yeah, looking forward cool. to that. Very good. Anyone else? I've uh, got a Cocoa cartridge uh, factory going on over here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah what are you building? Producing uh, Evan Wright's new game, uh, 3D Monster Maze. It's a very close to completion. Cool. Cool. And um, how how are you going to distribute those? Are they going to be available uh, for sale before Candy um, Assembly? Yep, they should be. Uh, I figure a few weeks. So probably as you're listening to this podcast, they should be available. Just cool, wait cool. for a couple little extra goodies that are going to go in the uh, cartridge boxes. What's the pricing awesome. on those? Uh, Thirty-five. Oh, oh very cool. good. They're about the same price as they were back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yep, and with inflation, it means they're probably four times uh, the value. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so very cool. All right, anyone else? I miss anything? All right, I know. Um, uh, Mike's had a non-Tandy project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keeping uh, him busy. Since, since I couldn't go to Cocoa Fest, I decided to move to South Carolina. So uh, <laughs> enjoying the, well, why enjoying not, the right? beaches here. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's an exciting. Uh, probably lots of, of fondling of your Cocoa gear along the way. So that might be isn't so bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm revisiting things I forgot I had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I took a stroll through the uh, storage room today and did some of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what about um, anybody pick up anything on eBay recently or any other acquisitions? What was that, Neil? 
I said it's been dry for eBay. Been dry, yeah. But I uh, did pick I, up a uh, for you. I did pick up a Shanghai ROM pack in a box. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was um, with you. Yeah, we did a a, a little uh, walkthrough of a. Uh, Coco uh, auctions on eBay um, on uh, what would have been Coco Fest Sunday, uh, which was kind of fun. I think a lot of people like that. Um, we may yeah, have to do that cool. again. That was cool. Yeah. Um, I've received uh, some positive feedback on that, so that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I did uh, also on eBay, I did pick up a, um, a nice boxed uh, copy of Zork 2 for the color computer. So Infocom nice. games boxed for the Cocoa are pretty hard to find. Yeah, <laughs> they are. That's cool. So that's kind of cool. Came in pretty nice. All right. Well, very exciting. So hopefully that's got us off to a good start. <laughs> so why don't we take a, take a little break, and uh, we'll be back with some announcements. Does your Cocoa 3 run hot? Are you using an older Model 512K RAM upgrade? Or maybe you have a 128K Cocoa 3 that could use more memory. The Triad 512K memory board from Cloud9 is the solution you're looking for. Named for its unique triangular shape, the Triad only draws about 22 milliamps of current. That's an amazing 95% reduction in power. Less power means less heat and less stress on your Color Computer 3. The Triad 512K memory upgrade has been in production since 2013 with more than 500 units sold. So whether you need to upgrade to 512K or want to replace an older power-hungry memory board, the Cloud9 Triad is the proven, reliable 512K solution. Often copied, never duplicated. The Triad 512K upgrade from Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. All right. Coco Cruisers, now we're back with some announcements. Uh, you are, of course, listening to the Coco Crew podcast. We uh, have a Twitter feed for the podcast, and our Twitter handle, of course, is at Coco Crew Podcast. That's C O C O C R E W P O D C A S T. Uh, if you'd like to communicate through Twitter, feel free to tweet at us. We might actually tweet back. Um, of course, we are available on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. Uh, that's the Coco Crew Podcast, four separate words. But uh, come and check us out. Um, join the, the uh, join the page. Uh, we get a few bits of uh, unique inf- information there, or sometimes at least you get a jump on uh, the regular folks. <laughs> uh, we are, of course, a podcast. So uh, along with our own uh, RSS feed on the on the CocoCrew.org, um, we are available through Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play uh, for normal. Um, podcast downloads if you're a user of one of those feel free to log in and give us a review that seems to be a cool thing to do (laughs) and of course if you're more of the streaming type uh, we're available for streaming through spotify uh stitcher and tune in so uh, if you want to listen to us on your alexa then just feel free to say alexa play coco crew podcast (laughs) and you might be surprised what pops up Shouldn't be surprised, but anyway. <laughs> uh, let's see. For some time, we've been taking our audio podcast and running them through a little automatic conversion to produce a video file that we upload to YouTube. So uh, you can get us through YouTube. Um, why would you do that? Well, it sounds – why would you do that? Well, what we're told is that the um, the 
automated uh, subtitling on YouTube is helpful uh, for people for whom English is not their first language. <laughs> so especially if you have any trouble um, uh, following along with our awkward accents or <laughs> whatever, um, Neil, um, <clears throat> then uh, <laughs> you may want to check us out on YouTube. Let's see. We are a member of the Throwback Network. This is a, a collection of retro-themed podcasts uh, focused around um, 80s culture, uh, old video games, old computers, that sort of thing. If you're all caught up on the Cocoa Crew podcast, then we recommend that you check out the Throwback Network. Similarly, <laughs> we are also a member of uh, listed on the Game by Game podcast information hub. There's also a list of retro-themed podcasts. In this case, the focus is uh, gaming and uh, old computers. Uh, so, if, if uh, again, if you're caught up, then uh, feel free to check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. Let's see. Audio for the Cocoa Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you have a need to host uh, audio content online, then... Uh, whether it be for your own podcast or your church or your business or whatever you got, then uh, we recommend that you check out Cyber Ears where you will get your audio on your terms. If you want to reach out to the hosts of the Coco Group podcast, uh, we have a few email addresses set up. Uh, we have uh, the first three will reach all of the hosts of the podcast. And so we've got show, S-H-O-W, at cococrew.org, that's C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot O-R-G. And then uh, we also have um, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at cococrew.org. And, of course, feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at cococrew.org. Whichever one you can remember, uh -huh, then um, feel free to reach out. Give us feedback, uh, suggestions, news tips, whatever you like. And if you want to reach one of the hosts individually via email, uh, then we've got those addresses set up as well. I'm John, J-O-H-N, at CocoCrew.org. Neil is Neil, N-E-I-L, at CocoCrew.org. Mike is Mike, M-I-K-E, at CocoCrew.org. And Boise is Boise, B-O-I-S-Y, at CocoCrew.org. So, but like I said, if you want to reach out and touch us, so to speak, <laughs> via email, we are available. All right. On to some more somewhat disappointing <laughs> event announcements. Um, let's see. The first one that uh, had survived last month, um, Dragon Meetup 2020, was scheduled for July 4th and 5th of 2020. Um, and that is the... Uh, Computing History Museum in uh, Cambridge, UK. Um, unfortunately, um, the venue is currently closed. And so I have no idea when it will open back up. July is still some time away. It may reopen. Uh, last I heard, uh, if it does reopen, uh, they're still planning to have it. <laughs> but, you know, subject to events, right? So... Bad news if you're a, a, a UK, like a dragon person. Um, now, what we do have still on the books, uh, the Vintage Computer Festival Southeast, which is uh, still scheduled for July 10th through 12th of 2020. Uh, 
being held, uh, being co-hosted with um, the Southern Fried Game Room Expo. Uh, that'll be at the Marriott Renaissance Waverly in Atlanta, Georgia. Could be a nice place. <laughs> um, like I said, I, it sounds like it's uh, still scheduled. Um, current events, um, uh, Georgia, the Georgia governor is um, one of the first to move on reopening his state for business. So let's hope that goes well so they don't have to close down again. <laughs> and uh, hopefully by the middle of July, hopefully things will be going well enough and maybe we can actually get a, a live event. That'd be cool, huh? Yes. So, That's only, only six hours away for me now. Yeah, not too bad. Uh, so definitely uh, definitely keeping an eye on that one. All right. Well, that's the Vintage Computer Festival Southeast, July 10th and 12th, 10th through the 12th. Okay. And then uh, so Kansas Fest, the uh, Abitool event, um, they have pulled uh, pulled the trigger, so to speak, on that one and canceled the live event, which was scheduled for July 21st through the 26th. Uh, what they have now, they're planning what they call Virtual Kansas Fest. This, of course, will be an online event scheduled for July 24th through the 25th of 2020. And, um, you know, everybody's getting used to using uh, uh, Zoom and, and uh, Microsoft Teams and BlueJeans and all those sorts of, uh, uh, of technologies. So um, maybe they'll pull it off. Um, We'll see. I'm sure it will not match up. <laughs> if I'm disappointed missing a weekend of Cocoa Fest, then those guys have got to be um, disappointed missing a week of uh, Kansas Fest. You know, but yeah, you know, probably better than having nothing, right? <laughs> All right. Well, again, that was July 24th through 20, the 25th of 2020, and of course, still on the books, and hopefully it will remain so. Uh, coming up October 30th. Through November 1st of 2020, Tandy Assembly. This is now our big event in in the Tandy world, in the Cocoa world. Springfield, Ohio, it's a cool place to visit. Um, nice little town. It's, uh, un well, unfortunately, it's not all Cocoa. Unfortunately for us, maybe, but <laughs> it's kind of cool <laughs> to see some of the other Tandy stuff, too. So don't be afraid of the Z80. Um, the, uh, of course, we're in cooperation with the uh, the trash talk folks on getting that organized. That's a nice group of guys. So come out, show up strong, uh, show uh, your cocoa pride, and uh, um, make uh, Tandy Assembly the big event this year. I think we'll all be pleased. All right. Um, and that, of course, is the end of our announcements uh, of our live events. It's a little, like I said, they're a little bit lacking you know, this this year so far, but we all know what's happening in the world. All right, so why don't we take another little break, and then we'll come back with news. Hey, what's put a smile on your face this morning? Oh, it's my Fred. Fred? From accounting? No, you idiot. Fred, F-R-E-H-D. It's a hard drive emulator for the TRS-80. It emulates the original Tandy hard disk drive, but stores everything on an SD card. Oh, I see. I ran programs that I hadn't touched in years because running them from floppy disks was just so painful. More painful than Fred from accounting? <laughs> Shut up. For information and pricing, contact Ian Maverick via email. I-A-N-M at TRS-80.com. All right, welcome back, Cocoa Cruisers. And now it's time for the news. 
Our first news item this month comes from our friend of the show, Jim Gary. It's <laughs> Pentominoes. And uh, this is another game, a little harder to play with the uh, some of the numbers and, and things here. But uh, this is a port he did from uh, Compute Magazine, issue 48. Uh, so it's another MC10 game. Um, looks like another good one for your MC10. So Yeah. So thanks again, uh, Jim. Definitely cool. <laughs> okay, our next one is from Lawrence Woodman. Uh, position independent code uh, for the 6502 on the Commodore VIC-20. And uh, this, this article discusses writing position independent code for the 6502, which, uh, well, John, I'll get your input on this, but it seems like it'd be a little more challenging on 6502 than the 6809. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of why I included it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to kind of show that, um, but um, there's some interesting stuff there, and it it, it also <clears throat> it kind of goes along with the you know the, the stuff I did in the past talking about um, coding for the MC10, where uh, you have to you know a lot of things that you on the 6809 uh, you would um, just use a, a, a specific addressing mode, uh, coding for the 6803, which is you know akin to the 6800. Um, you have to kind of compute the addresses yourself. And the 6502 is uh, all of that in spades. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, like I said, you can do some stuff that's position independent. You can play tricks and get uh, the value of the program counter and compute things based on that or whatever. Uh, there's some other neat tricks uh, in there that um, kind, of a, kind of apply, or if nothing else, they – they're worth knowing uh, just in case they uh, come up as it could be useful at some point in, um, in basically in any assembly language. Um, but anyway, uh, kind of cool. And, uh, you know, if you're of a programming or uh, assembly programming mindset, um, it's probably something there you'll enjoy. All right. This uh, next article is uh, pretty close to my heart. It's uh, from Benji and uh, Benji Edwards or Benji Edwards. Uh, even 25 years later, the iOmega Zip is unforgettable. Yeah. And so the it's hard to believe it's that old already, but uh, the uh, Zip drive, uh, everybody's probably familiar with those. I know when I got my first Mac back in 96, I, that's one of the first purchases I made was a Zip drive to do backups. And uh, I still use them with the uh, Super IDE and uh, OS 9. So, oh, yeah. Uh, they're, but uh, they're still around, and you can still get the media for it. Uh, I mean, it was yeah. way ahead of its time as far as the amount of storage you could put on a zip drive versus, uh, you know, this is, I, I think what really ended up killing it was the, uh, you know, cheap disposable CDR. So. Sure. Sure. But, yeah. Uh, in his time, it was, you know, it was kind of cool as it came about in a point where, you know, floppies, everybody knew floppies were kind of dead or dying, but uh, they're still pretty convenient. <laughs> yeah. So the zip disks are kind of, it, Similar form factor, um, have some of the same niceness of being able to carry them around and pop them in and out and um, easy to handle with the big fat fingers or whatever. Um, but like you, I, I I think the only one I ever bought um, uh, I used with the old uh, um, uh, TC3 SCSI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And um, uh, I've picked up a few, you know, here and there uh, since then, just because uh, they can be handy, particularly with a cocoa. Um, 
And um, of course, you know, like you say today with the SD cards uh, or even compact flash, um, it's so much more capacity and even more convenient form factor. Um, but there's there's still there's a, a certain kind of retro coolness about them. Mike, didn't I send you some of those? Yeah, you sent me a couple more. I st- yeah, I still have yeah. those. The, uh, cool. the uh, I think those were the ATAPI parallel versions. Yep. So which will work with a Super IDE. So it supports those ATAPI zip drives. Cool. All right, this next one is from Steve Ostrom. I came across an interesting probability problem a few days ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's just it's neat to me because. Uh, you know, he went through this exercise of doing it, you know, writing some basic code on the Cocoa. So it's kind of reminiscent of the kinds of things I might have done as a high school or middle school kid, kind of working through a concept. Might would have written a little program on the Cocoa to, to illustrate it or exercise it or whatever. And uh, some other people picked up on it. Uh, so it's worth looking at the the link there and some of the comments. Um, I don't know. It's just fun to see people use their Cocos. All right, we've got another one from friend of the show, Jim Gary. <laughs> Ding. Have, yeah, have created Coco and Dragon versions of the following text, adversion, uh, text adventures. Uh, he's got uh, Dog Star, The Time Machine, which he translated from Dutch, <laughs> Night, Night of the Vampire Bunnies by Jason <laughs> Dyer, and The Mystery of Flagstone Manor, one of the first Australian text adventures. And as a bonus, he says he put Mindbusters from Compute Magazine, April 85. So another flood of uh, good games for your MC10 from Jim Geary. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Who can who can ever have enough text adventures, right? Uh, that's right. <laughs> All right, this next one is from David Fischera, I guess. Uh, here is my entry. This was very, very timely. Here's my entry for the basic uh, 10-liner contest 2020. It's called COVID Breaker. And what he's done is he's taken a, a looks like it was an, a, a modification of a game that had different uh, creatures that you went after, and he's converted it uh, so that uh, they look like coronaviruses. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. <laughs> So, also, I wasn't cool. really aware of Jawbreaker, but it's almost like a reverse Farfall. Um, go up the the, uh, the 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 platforms or whatever. Kind of cool. I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This next one is from Reetfield. Reetfield. Modified drive wire disc images to run the Sidekick menu system. And this is a, vin- a video from uh, Hanrank. And he kind of shows what he did with his drive wire disk images so that he could navigate everything from the sidekick menu system. Um, it's a cool little video. I wish he would have uh, talked about how he modified things, though. Yeah. So you need a follow-up, Henry. Yeah, some more technical details <laughs> would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> Feel free to record something. We'll, we could even run it as a text segment. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, for sure. Nice work on that. Keep using drive wire. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, you know, it's, um, um, especially the people who join the community so late that uh, the Cocoa SCC has always existed for them. Uh, some of them don't seem to see the value of what DriveWire ever provided or whatever. They don't remember a time when floppy drives were all dying or floppy media was all dying. <laughs> it's hard to get, especially anything you couldn't find original, even if you did have the floppy drives. There's no easy way to use a, a disk image oh, except with an emulator. So, um, 
the drive wire it remains a little underappreciated by uh, some of the newcomers. Yeah. yeah it, uh, it was a true. good bridge for that time. Get away from floppies and onto newer stuff. Yep. Yeah, and you can see it's still super flexible. It seems like there's always an easy way to hook it in. Exactly. Uh, yep. Who can answer all your questions? Tandy can. Okay, it's my turn. Let me uh, get ready here. <clears throat> here we go. All right, so the next news item in the list is I wrote a little game for the Coco 123 this week. Hope you enjoy it by Allison Denou. This looks like a disk image that Allison has made available called Xenocide.dsk. I loaded it up in my MAME emulator. Takes a little while to load and compute some variables. It looks like a game. I didn't have a joystick or anything connected to it, but there's a looks like a sphere or a planet, and I'm not exactly sure of the objective, but looks interesting. John, did you try it out? Yeah, and no, I'm sorry I didn't get to the game either, but wanted to include it just to, because um, you know Allison seems like uh, it's not a name I'm familiar with, so I think she's kind of new to the community or at least the broader community. And uh, it's good to see uh, some contributions coming in from uh, from the newcomers. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's always cool to have a new game. And that, that's written in BASIC, isn't it? Um, sure. I think I it think is, so. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. which is yeah. kind of impressive, too. Uh, yeah. Some yes. optimization that she did to uh, – yeah, it looks like uh, I haven't had a chance to, to play with it either. I kind of did like you, Boise. I, I spun it up, but I didn't have a joystick, so – uh, yeah, it looks like it's it's pretty interesting. It's different, unique. Yeah, good job. It's good to see new stuff like that. Okay, the next news item is build this 8-bit home computer with just five chips by Matt Sarnoff. This is cool. This is an article on IEEE Spectrum, which is an engineering website slash magazine. It used to be a magazine. Uh, I was a member of IEEE for a while, and it talks about it uh, looks like taking a uh, an, at, an AT Mega 1284 and I guess emulating a, an 8-bit CPU even down to the to the video signal. John is what it looks like. Yeah, I'm. I, I mean, I guess this is. I'm not sure about the details on the CPU. To be honest, might actually be AVR code. But um, yeah, we covered um, this uh, computer a couple of months ago. I think uh, in a different link. But, um, you know, this yeah. is, uh, you know, that it's in IEEE Spectrum was kind of cool and a little more mm -hmm. detail. Um, this Matt Sarnoff uh, has a collection of videos on YouTube where he did a, a homebrew 6809 computer many years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, some cool stuff there. And then uh, this one has a lot of detail on the NTSC signal generation. So that was pretty cool. It's a cool project. The the abbreviated keyboard is kind of neat. Um <laughs> uh, it's yep. kind of compact or whatever. I don't know. It's just kind of, kind of a cool project. I yeah. certainly remember Matt's name. It rings a bell. Yep. Done some cool stuff. All right. The next news item is Tandy Color Computer 3 R&D or Random Function by John Mark Mobley. This was a post to the Tandy Color Computer mailing list, the Cocoa list. Looks like a basic program that he wrote to... I guess, see what the range of the random function in BASIC was. Is this somehow inspired by Steve Alstrom's uh, post, do you think, Sean? Uh, I'm not sure if it's the, the exact inspiration, but 
Um, the inclusion is kind of the same theory that it's cool to see somebody, you know, writing some code just to test out stuff on, uh, on a cocoa. And, uh, it's spawned, it spawned a pretty good, pretty long thread with a lot of participation. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion on random number generation. Yep. Pseudo random. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Good stuff. Awesome. All right. The next news item is the devil's whist by our friend of the show, Jim Gary. This is a YouTube video. It looks like a, I just briefly looked over, John. It looks like a card game of sorts, maybe. I see the word shuffling and. Yeah, it's yeah a card it looks game. like a card game. And I don't know if this is a common card game or not, but it looks like a good game from Jim. Yeah, especially if you like card games, uh, solo style card games or whatever. I don't know anything about the origin of the game itself, but um, it looks like a good implementation. So uh, a good way to pass some time. <laughs> good job, Jim. The next news item is Infocom Tribute Jam by Blind Hunter at itch.io. This is a, I'm just going over, it looks like this is some type of a contest of some sort that he wants people to write an Infocom adventure written in uh, Zark implementation language or in Form 6. Is that right, yeah. John? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. That's, uh, like I say, it's a, it's a coding contest for uh, interactive fiction, basically. Nice. Pretty cool. It's nice to see. And, it, you know, it's got some time on it. I'm looking at two months and three weeks or so left to go at this point, which is probably enough if you have an idea for a game, um, cool. especially if you already know either Inform or Zill. But uh, if you don't, you probably better get cracking. <laughs> <laughs> get a little bit of a learning curve. Yeah. All right. The next news item is this just in. There's a desperate need for hundreds of, of COBOL programmers in the state of New Jersey by Kenneth Udu from CNBC.com. This is an interesting story. Uh, I had heard about this earlier in the week that apparently some of these uh, states with unemployment systems to handle unemployment claims are still running of all things COBOL, and they are needing people to come in and help, I guess, update the systems or deal with some programming oddities. Very interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, COBOL lives on. You know, a lot of people say it's a dead language, but it's still running a lot of systems <laughs> around the world. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, um, it, like I said, it's because it seems like a dead system or something that a lot of uh, older folks, shall we say, um, may have um, uh, grown up learning to program in or whatever, um, it's kind of retro-related. I know by the time I was going through college, um, nobody learned COBOL. I'm not even oh, sure yeah. if I could, could have learned COBOL. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a gone language by the time I went through college as well. You guys are too young. We were, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like in the 90s there was a big rush to convert from COBOL to C. A lot of the financial uh -huh. institutions did. I, I did have a professor that uh, – who a computer science professor who – liked Fortran and showed a little bit of that in class, but that was the only what I would call older language I was exposed to until much later whenever uh, I took a programming languages course and we had to use something called Algol 68, huh. <laughs> which is a precursor I, I, to Pascal. But anyway, yeah, COBOL is uh, it's, a, it's very interesting that this is still relevant. Mike, you were going to say something? Oh, just that uh, I, I played with a COBOL on, compiler on CPM. Yeah, there was also a, a COBOL compiler for OS9. 
that Michael Weir sold at one point, although I don't, I never played with it. Yeah, I'd like to find that. If anybody has that, I would love to get a chance to mess with it. I agree. Yeah, I think that would be cool. Yeah. Okay, the next news item is related to the one I just read. This one is titled, IBM will offer free COBOL training to address overload unemployment systems by Tom Maxwell at Input. So, wow, what a gracious thing to do, right? IBM is going to give people free COBOL training. Now, I don't know if that's if that comes with any pre- prerequisites or requirements, uh, but... Uh, Basically, what it looks like is they're willing to help uh, get people up to speed on the language. Yeah. Well, it's kind of cool. Uh, I'm sure it's not, you know, there's no, there's, it's not without some self-interest. <laughs> of course. But uh, um, <laughs> it's cool that it's out there and can be helpful to some people. I mean, if you find somebody that likes COBOL, um, they usually really like COBOL. Um, and... Um, I think there was a, a real focus on making it the the syntax of the language as natural language as possible. Um, it's it's very verbose, um, and you know I haven't used it really at all other than just to to read enough of it to kind of think I could almost read it. <laughs> but um, um, you know it. it it, there's something to be said for programs. The easier they are to read, they tend to be um, less buggy because if you read them and understand them, then they more likely to do what you actually intend them to do. Right. So there's something to be said for it. Um, you know, I don't know. It's uh, and like I say, they, it was killed by C or whatever. Um, it's certainly by the dot com era, um, and you know, it's. Um, I had a, a job working at Computerland when I was in in college um, in the summers, and um, there, there was just a, a kind of a local IT place, or not? It was a chain of IT places. Um, but the, the our local office's big contract was was, was with uh, Wachovia Bank, which uh, is now part of Wells Fargo, but. Um, and so we did a lot of, you know, go in and drop PCs on, on new people's desks sort of uh, things. Um, and uh, there were a few, you know, people not much older than me um, coming in as programmers, um, taking jobs, writing COBOL code. And I was like, dude, what the, what are you doing? You know, they're like, well, <laughs> yeah. it's <a> job. <laughs> you know. Apparently it's still of, in demand, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, now 20 years later, those guys are probably all retired, too. Um. I, I was just looking online, and there's actually uh, a COBOL uh, a to LLVM intermediate representation project on GitHub. So, I mean, yeah. you know, obviously it's still relevant and it's still being used. That's pretty cool. Well, right. But, I mean, it's, um, like you say, the, the, the language is almost lost in some ways. I know, um, you know, still going back to college, uh, uh, one of the classes I took in college was uh, used Pascal as the implementation language. Um, but even then, uh, on our Unix systems, uh, we used, instead of a Pascal compiler, we used something called P2C, which would mm-hmm. literally yep. trans- translate the Pascal code to C code and then use the C compiler to, to build the programs. Right. Um, I noticed one of the... the the COBOL projects that's in, in the GNU world, 
um, is essentially the same thing, except it, com- it translates COBOL programs to C and then uses the C compiler to, to build them. Right. And then oddly enough, even that project is like five years dead or whatever. It's not even packaged in, in the uh, recent Linux distributions. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, even even with current situations, I'm not sure how much life COBOL has in it. But, um, you know, it, it could be we'll have another Y2K kind of a situation that brings the COBOL programmers out of the closets. Who knows? Good stuff. This is... This is the kind of stuff I enjoy working with and, and reading about. You know what uh, amazes me about this article, um, you know, just in general as a whole, is how many old platforms are still running out there. Mm-hmm. You know, and at times like this, you get, you know, you're, you're starting to see uh, all these retro machines that are still in operation. Yeah. Different companies. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, yeah. a few months ago we had the the, the articles we kind of laughed at about the missile systems uh, running with eight inch right. floppy disks. Yeah, that's right. But right. Amazing. What do you? What language do you think the programs running on those computers that were stored on those eight inch floppy disks or whatever? What pro, What right. do you think they wrote that in? They weren't C. And it probably was not C. Yeah. No. <laughs> and, uh, it and sure wasn't JavaScript. Let me tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, that's right. But, you know, it makes you wonder, though, like, uh, why, you know, is it because it's reliable or just nobody wants to update it? Well, it, it in the end, it works, right? And I right. guess, you know, there's budgets, and especially when you're talking about governments, right? They tend to hold on to things for a while and don't want to change. And there's always a change cost that they want to avoid. So it's probably right. has a lot to do with it. And, uh, of course, banks with COBOL. Hey, you know, banks don't have any money, so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I mean it is a if it does, if it works, don't fix it uh, kind of mentality for sure. Right. And uh, a lot of those, you know, banking transactions, even though we do different things, we're buying different things or whatever, the basic transactions aren't all that different than what they were 50 years ago. And basically, they wrote them and they got them right. <laughs> so yep. why change them now? People are still adding and subtracting. That's basically exactly. basic math. So. Good, good discussion, by the way. Here's a color computer monitor bargain from your nearby Radio Shack. Save $50 on our exclusive Tandy CM8 RGB analog color monitor. Only $249.95 during this sale. It's designed specifically for the Color Computer 3. It's a perfect complement to the superb graphics capabilities of the Color Computer 3 and produces sharp, crisp text and dazzling graphs and illustrations. The sale price Tandy CM8 color monitor. Only at Radio Shack, a Tandy company. All right, I think I'm up next. Yep. My uh, set of news articles here. Uh, this is a great one to start off for me. Uh, it's from uh, Jordan Mechner. Uh, the Making of Prince of Persia, Journals 1985 to 1993, Illustrated Edition. Uh, what this is, it's a pre-order for a book you can get on, uh, well, there's a, John's got an Amazon link here. Um, but uh, this is this is pretty cool because Prince of Persia was one of my favorite games back in the day. It's you know nice smooth animation on it. It uh, had a lot of you know technical advancements at the time. It's really cool to see this. I, I think I'm actually going to pick this one up. I did right. get excited when I saw yeah. the price. Then I realized uh, it's in U.S. currency. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact That's that it's pictorial is, is what's exciting about it. I think. Yeah. That's fine. I'm looking at it now, and uh, it looks like the hardback is actually uh, seven cents cheaper than the paperback. I see that. Yeah. yeah. So, 
Jordan Megner um, had um, he had uncovered these journals several years ago, and he had made them available uh, as a, an ebook on Kindle or whatever. And I uh, actually acquired them uh, and read some of it, uh, <laughs> maybe not all of it, but they're pretty cool. I mean, they're like you know real time, day to day. You know, and some of it is like, uh, yeah, I had breakfast again. Uh, you know, I had cereal for breakfast again today, but, uh, I, you know, it was up late last night or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of it is about, you know, the, you know, dealing with the publishers and, um, some of the technical issues and whatever. Um, and so my understanding is that this book is, is, you know, it's a physical book, but still basically that same content, somewhat enhanced, I think, with some, uh, pictures and illustrations and that sort of thing. Um, I, like I said, I bought the, the Kindle edition years ago, but I, I'm ordering this one too. Um, I think it'll be cool. It's a, definitely Prince of Persia was an awesome game for its time. And, you know, it originally came out on the Apple II, which is, you know, not nowhere near as powerful as the Coco 3. It's not, not even, in my opinion, as powerful as the Coco 2. And I'm sure all the Apple folks will hate me for saying that. But... Um, <laughs> It's kind of definitely an amazing technical achievement. Um, uh, of course, the rotoscoping to do, get this fluid uh, graphic animation and all that sort of stuff. But there's some other cool stuff in there too. The Tandy 1000 version is good. Just, uh, just saying. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I've originally discovered it on a on a PC, and I was just blown away at at, at how amazing the animation and stuff was. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, and that was on a 386, and nothing else had come close to it, and it performed basically just as well on the on the 8086. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, if you pre-order, you can save 26% here at shows. Very cool. Yeah. Released April 28th, 2020. So if anybody's listening and they want to get a copy, now's your time to order. All right, our next uh, news article is from uh, Carlos Camacho. Uh, he's he's pretty big in the community. Probably uh, You've probably seen him around. Uh, this is an article he found. He follows the Japanese uh, retro computer groups, which I think is kind of interesting. Comes up with some neat stuff. And uh, this title is PC connected to the DB9, which is the Atari style joystick port of his NEC PC6001 Z80 machine. And uh, it sends images to his 8 bit home computer. Yeah, that's pretty cool. This so on the machine, also known as the NEC Trek, <laughs> NEC Trek, T R E K. Um, it's, um, it's a Z80 based machine, but it has a, the 6847, uh, video display generator. Right. So it's kind of related to the Coco. So there's definitely some similarities in the, the appearance of the graphics. Um, that's probably about as far as the Coco link here goes, <laughs> but, um, still a neat project. Um, now you you couldn't quite repli- replicate this with the joystick ports uh, because um, they just work differently uh, on the Coco. Of course, on the Coco you could just use the the Bitbanger for the serial connection. Um, but um, you know it's a it's a kind of fun thing to do sometimes, especially if you're working on if you take an interest in converting graphics uh, from you know modern sources over to what you can do on the Coco or in this case on the NecTrack. Um, it's kind of cool just to do them and run the conversions and then actually display them on the the the, uh, the vintage hardware. And um, like I said, that's what they're essentially what they're doing here is uh, transferring the the image data over, uh, basically filling the graphics buffer from the PC. 
Pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's nice to see this, these kind of projects. All right. Uh, speaking of projects, our next uh, article is from friend of the show, Jim Gary. Uh, it's a retro challenge, April 2020. Uh, it's, he's working on this project, the game Mazies and Crazies. Uh, this is a type in mania programming basic on the TRS-80 MC-10. Yeah, cool. It's um, like you say, it's you know, it's Jim being Jim, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, doing uh, some type in stuff and um, conversions from other systems and whatever. He's doing the blogging here. He's participating in the retro challenge. Um, you know, I kind of turned over the retro challenge to uh, to someone else uh, maybe a year ago. And um, uh, then uh, that person uh, kind of had their own distractions, and so someone else is picking it up now. <laughs> and um, anyway, so Jim's participating there, and uh, it's cool to see it go. He's, his participation is cool to see Retro Challenge continue uh, either yeah, way. It is. Ah, that's cool. I've got a hardback of that book in that link. That, uh, oh, yeah? Frank, Frank oh. DaCosta book. So Cool. All right, our next uh, news article is from Alan Huffman. Uh, title is If and or then versus if then if. Yep. Um, so it's cool. It's, um, you can tell it's close to what well, should have been Coca Fest. Because <laughs> Alan's back doing some blogging and uh, doing some of his investigations of basic and basic optimization or whatever. Right. And um, so he's experimenting with some. Some control structures um, <laughs> and some variations on them, and see what performs better. Some of it, some of it might be intuitive and make sense. Some of it might not be quite as intuitive. But he's got, uh, he's actually running the tests and showing, uh, you know, how they actually perform. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's good to see him active again. All right, our next news article is from uh, Graham Toll on Vetrex Fans Unite. It's a Facebook page or Facebook group. Uh, Asteroids dot ASM, ASM is a pretty good conversion for the 6809. This looks like another Asteroids clone. Uh, yep. Yeah. Well, the well, so Graham, I guess, is trying to goad somebody into doing a Vectrex version, but the original there, um, this is actually we mentioned um, the uh, Matt Sarnoff. He, he did his um, his um, homebrew 6809 years ago, and he published his game to run on that hardware. And uh, so now here's Graham is referencing that game as uh, something that could be, um, if you convert the video to work with the vectors on the Vectrix, uh, it could be a Vectrix game. But, um, you know, uh, the same would go for if you convert the video to, to, to target the, uh, the VDG or the Gimme, right. uh, it could be a Coco game. <laughs> so um, if you're kind of new to 6809 assembly, um, maybe not 100% comfortable starting completely from scratch, but if you're ready to um, experiment with uh, some conversions of the video or whatever, somebody's already worked out most of the logic for this game for an Asteroids clone. My guess is it wouldn't be too difficult. Um, I haven't tried doing it, so my guess may not be worth anything. But <laughs> um, my guess is that you could convert this over to the Coco and have a kind of a cool Asteroids game. So. There's your challenge. Who will accept? Yeah, it probably looked pretty cool, too. Yeah. All right. Uh, next news article is from uh, Joe O'Connor. It's uh, posted in the National Post. Heroes of the Pandemic. 
former CEO of Radio Shack, now an ER doctor on front lines of COVID-19 fight. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool to see that. That's pretty cool. Um, it's hard for me to imagine being the CEO of risen that high. You know, if you're a CEO of Radio Shack, that's pretty good, you know? Yeah. Um, pretty reasonable to be in business at that level. Um, and then to just kind of stop and go back to medical school of all things, it's, uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, you don't so, see that often. Yeah. So it's neat to hear about this guy doing this. Yeah. Looks like a Canadian. It's a good cause. So, uh, so Neil can take pride in his, uh, countrymen. <laughs> pretty neat. Very cool. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, last news article for me is from, uh, Mike, and I cannot pronounce his last name. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm not sure. And uh, it's kind of sad, actually. It's uh, John Horton Conway, creator of Conway's Game of Life, has died. Yeah. So a lot of us, if we've ever done any programming at some point or another, seen this uh, Conway's Game of Life challenge uh, where you, you write these little collections of uh, supposedly organisms that uh, – you, know, you apply a set of rules to them, and they're, they're um, I guess these are cellular automata is the um, the computer science term for them. Um, basically, you, you apply uh, the rules to them to whether or not each cell uh, continues to live or, or dies or, or if a new cell you know, comes to life because of its proximity to other living cells. And people can do pretty neat things with them. You can form them in certain ways and then kick them off and they'll move across the screen or form certain, um, you know, structures or whatever. It's kind of neat. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but that's the basic story, of course, this well-known um, influential computer science person from the, from the past is, uh, is now uh, escaped the surly bonds of earth. Uh, yeah. Is this you? Oh my god, I've got 40 pages to print! Tired of waiting on a slow serial attached printer? End the waiting with Blue Streak Ultima, the ultimate serial to parallel adapter. Wow, I'll have this report ready in time for the meeting! Just connect Blue Streak Ultima to your Coco's built in serial port and connect the other end to any printer with a 36 pin Centronics compatible parallel printer port. Blue Streak Ultima works with any version Coco. Seven switchable baud rates, 300 to 19.2. Select the desired baud rate with the easy-to-use selector knob. No jumpers, no hassle, just faster printing. Try it on your system for 30 days, risk-free. If you're not totally satisfied with the performance of Blue Streak Ultima, return it for a full refund. Blue Streak Ultima comes with a one-year warranty and costs just $39.95. Blue Streak Ultima, the ultimate serial-to-parallel converter. All right. Well, I guess that moves on to me. Um, mine's, uh, I've got kind of two subsections here. <laughs> um, so if you remember, we had the um, uh, Cocoa Fest Challenge that um, I had to, uh, well, I, whether or not I had to, I, I kind of declared uh, uh, sort of null or whatever because it was indefinitely postponed Cocoa Fest. But we did have some uh, um, participants um, I reached out to the participants and um, um, asked them, uh, you know, if they um, 
We're interested in the consolation prize. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute, but um, most of them were not. Uh, there's really only three major participants anyway, but a couple of them, oh, one of them was interested and a couple of them weren't, but one of them said he was going to continue doing stuff. And uh, uh, that was Scott Went. And so he's was been working on a um, find where so it's a joystick converter into the Coco from a Xbox controller. There we go. That makes sense because Scott works for uh, Microsoft, so of course it'd be an Xbox, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, so Scott continued to do some work and continued to do some blogging. So basically, kind of finished up his project, uh, which is really cool. And um, we were interested in. Um, Using your Xbox Xbox controller with the Coco, uh, then you may want to check out these two links um, and uh, take a look at the work he's done and uh, have some fun. It's pretty cool. Uh, so very good, Scott. And see, and of course the other person uh, kind of continuing his work was uh, of course Mr. Jim Brain. Jim has uh, done a, a lot of hardware projects for the Coco over the past few years, and his uh, Coco Fest challenge. Basically involved trying to figure out how to do DMA through the cartridge port, which um, isn't, I think, is not too difficult or too weird for the Coco One and Two, but because of a design um, aspect of the Coco Three, there's a buffering chip that basically is um, always configured to to, um, to write out to the cartridge port, not to not to take data in from it. And so he um, uh, explored some theories on how to possibly trick that into happening or whatever, and he had some success. Um, and so there's a, some some of us um, maybe a little thick on the electrical engineering, um, but uh, it's kind of cool that he figured out how to make that work and uh, talks about it. And um, uh, I don't know how practical the solution really is, um, but um, I think what we're really missing is the real need for the DMA. And if we had a, something that said, well, we really, really need DMA in from the cartridge port to make this work, then uh, then uh, his solutions uh, then will start to look more practical. <laughs> so um, anyway, he's got some pretty th thoroughly documented um, blog entries uh, related to the doing DMA on the Cocoa. And if that interests you at all, then I recommend you check them out. All right, and then another link here from Jim Brain. One of the um, when, I, when I asked them uh, the participants if they were interested in a consolation prize, uh, told them to send me their address and indicate whether their preference was uh, chocolate, cookies, or beef. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Jim picked beef, and so um, I uh, picked out an arrangement of uh, of. Uh, Frozen meats from uh, the uh, Kansas City Steak Company, and uh, sent them along to him. And he took some pictures, including, uh, of course, they pack it in dry ice. And so he did some uh, some uh, fun experimenting with dry ice. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully, he and his uh, daughters enjoyed that. Our daughter, yeah, I guess, if more than one daughter. Anyway, hopefully, he and his daughter uh, uh, enjoyed the. Um, experimenting or the spooky uh, fog or whatever. <laughs> Looks like they had some fun. So that's cool. All right. So that's the first subsection. And then the uh, second subsection here is basically um, 
John's been uh, in the house a lot uh, for the past <laughs> a few weeks, and John's uh, starting to get a little bored or stir crazy. Um, so uh, here's one from me. Thoughts? Does this look fun? Um, so uh, somehow I came across uh, the the game Canyon Bomber, and um, I uh, found uh, I went and found the uh, SG Edit um, uh, program that Simon Johnson had put together. Anyway, that um, I, I took and, and uh, sketched up a little uh, call it a prototype. <laughs> a mock-up. Um, a mock-up, there you go, a mock-up of, uh, of what a Coco version might look like, done with semi-graphics uh, characters. Hello. It's, uh, some people seem to think it looked all right. Um, I think it might would be a fun game. Um, I haven't actually gone anywhere with it, but um, at least, you know, the tool is out there, and that's kind of what I was trying to do is uh, promote that the tool is out there. If you want to do some mock-ups, you can at least see what the graphics should look like. So, very cool. Yeah, it looks cool. Yeah. Well, great on a color computer. Yeah. <laughs> that might be fun. Okay. Well, then moving on. Let's see. Um, okay. Uh, so I've been hearing about uh, people doing the happy hour events. In fact, even my group at work has been doing some happy hour events on Fridays. Um, and uh, so it occurred to me that, uh, you know, we have this software we use for the podcast, and it can stream to the uh, to the Facebook group. And so I put together a little happy hour event and just said, uh, you know, I just went on and said, here I am. And if you want to join me, here's the link. And uh, waited a little while and a few people joined up and we just kind of you know, did a little rag chew for uh, 20 or 30 minutes. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, this is kind of a goofy thing to do, but um, uh, had some fun that afternoon. It was good to catch up. Uh, uh, with uh, Joe Grubbs and uh, uh, Dean Notarnicola. <laughs> I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Anyway, Dean showed up. Um, we kind of just had a little chat. So uh, feel free to check it out. And uh, if, it's, if you see us online again, maybe you can join in and, and uh, hang out with us. Okay. So then the next one, uh, Farfall Music Alternatives. I did a little YouTube video. Um, like I said uh, in the intro, I've been doing some experimentation with uh, some different musical um, pieces uh, as part of a, a farfall, and um, this uh, video kind of uh, demonstrates some of them. So um, this is me uh, using uh, uh, my MML music macro language converter to convert some pieces that were written by other people <laughs> uh, over to to work on the game master cartridge and. Uh, Check it out, see if you enjoy it. And then um, then the next one is sort of, sort of a follow-on there. Okay, time for Coco Crew listeners to get a pandemic bonus. So basically I've uh, taken the, 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 the alternative music selections on Farfall and um, um, put them together, changed the title to uh, the Farfall Pandemic Edition, and made a, uh, a ROM image available. <laughs> and, and so for some period of time, uh, you'll be able to uh, uh, download from the link uh, there on Facebook. Um, and uh, well, the link actually points out to the uh, uh, com site. But um, um, you download it and you can play it um, either on XROAR or MAME uh, with a proper 
command line magic, or um, you can burn it to a ROM and put it on your Game Master cartridge developer hardware, and then you can play Farfall. Not, uh, I'm not doing uh, a production uh, cartridge of uh, Pandemic Edition, uh, at least not at this time. Uh, so if you want to play it, um, this is uh, this is your option. And uh, if you do if you do play it, good luck getting uh, the the Evan Polka out of your head. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, a catchy tune. I like how the music gets faster as you as you play the game. Yeah, definitely, it's a fun aspect, and uh, gets you nervous. Got to have the right musical piece to make that work. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so I mean, there's not, nothing stopping people from burning a, you know, a ROM, putting it in a GMC if they have one. Exactly. So, yeah. and if you don't have a Game Master cartridge developer kit, well, I know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, send me well. some email if you're interested, and, um, and uh, I think uh, I think I was making those available for what twenty five dollars before. Sounds about right. Um. So anyway. Reach out if you need one. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our news segment. So why don't we take another little break? Back with some feedback. Telewriter 64, the color computer word processor. Three display formats, 51, 64, or 85 columns by 24 lines. True lowercase characters. User-friendly full-screen editor. Write justification. Easy hyphenation. Drives any printer. Embedded format and control codes. Runs in 16K, 32K, or 64K with or without extended color basic. Menu-driven disc and cassette I.O. No hardware modifications necessary. So simple to use, it makes writing fun. Telewriter 64 can display more text on the screen than the Apple II, Atari, TI, Vic, or even the TRS-80 Model 3. Telewriter 64 surpasses all others for user-friendliness and pure power. Step up to professional word processing on the low-cost TRS-80 color computer. Telewriter 64, just $49.95 for cassette or $59.95 for disc. Telewriter 64 from Cognitech. Okay, Cocoa Cruisers, welcome back for some feedback. Uh, Let's see, last time we were talking a a bit about, um, uh, we had some kind of discussion talking about uh, the the Glenside meeting that had preceded the the recording of the past uh, uh, episode. And uh, one of the things that we kind of complained about how Glenn's had um, spent some time uh, discussing about, um, well, discussing whether or not they should get a P.O. box, and maybe they spent too much time talking about bylaws and that sort of stuff. And so Jim Breen fessed up that he would have been the uh, originator of the P.O. box discussion. And uh, so he he, um, he fessed up to that and then went on to say, um, do the, so the bylaw change requester ask the bylaws discussion be tabled until after the fest, just to free up discussion time? All that said, I can't argue about the lack of fest agenda items is, is itself is a miss. So, so a little set in the record straight kind of thing from Jim, uh, but I think ultimately he kind of uh, I sort of agreed that, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe they weren't quite ready for Cocoa Fest anyway, I guess is the point I think we were trying to make. So maybe the delay wasn't so bad in some ways. Anyway, um, so the next uh, feedback item, this comes from uh, Mr. Robert Allen Murphy. Um, And uh, Robert, (laughs) he sent us quite the feedback item. Uh, Way too much to quote here. Um, So um, says, greetings, Cocoa Crew. I'm trying something new for Cocoa Crew feedback this month. Let me know if it's good, meh, or bad. 
I mean, it was great to get the feedback. Um, there's uh, lots of points raised and, and discussion and suggestions, and it, there was a lot there. And so it's cool to get. Uh, it was really hard to quote <laughs> in the feedback section. <laughs> yeah, it was section, a great letter. So. Great letter, but yeah. uh, too broad to, to cover here. Yeah, so I apologize for not being able to uh, to make a concise um, uh, quote from it. But uh, anyway, it was cool to hear from you, Robert. So uh, so that part's good. Yeah, keep them coming. <laughs> keep them coming. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I always love to hear your feedback, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, then, uh, keep, like I said, keep keep sending them in. Uh, but that is our last feedback item for the month. So we're going to take another little break, and then uh, we'll be back with, uh, well, the rest of the show. Tuesday on Coco TV, we're back with everyone's favorite off-the-wall Radio Shack store manager. 260518. When are you going to be finished with this inventory? I want you to take me out tonight. 260528. 260532. More like 26 dash dog. An outrageous new 103 Main Street. Then join Miss Wilson as she teaches America's most unruly sixth grade computer class. Today, we are going to be talking about the order of operations. Oh, oh what a wonderful display of gestures! It's a brand new Metro City Elementary, right after 103 Main Street, Tuesdays on Coco TV. Radio Shack has big news. It's the new Tandy Color Computer 3. It has 128K of memory built in. Choose from a palette of 64 brilliant colors. The keyboard features new function keys. And with the new CM8 RGB monitor, take full advantage of the Color Computer 3's 80-column text mode. And best of all, your local Radio Shack dealer has them right now, along with a complete line of other Radio Shack and Tandy computers. When you see them, you'll know why Radio Shack is the biggest name in little computers. All right, Coco Cruisers, welcome back. Uh, we're going to have a little discussion among the hosts. And uh, so the topic, um, well, so the topic uh, is going to be uh, our collectors, you know, quote-unquote collectors, different from the rest of us. <laughs> and so uh, the, what inspired the, the, the topic is a couple of times I've seen references to where people say something to the effect of, uh, well, you know, I like to use my machine. I don't just collect it, which I guess is sort of like the, you know, my machines aren't uh, aren't trailer queens. They're actually daily drivers or whatever. I kind of get that. Um, but I've also seen, uh, you know, like I, I saw somebody uh, basically say, um, well, I've got a Coco 3. I'm not going to be bothered to, to buy a Coco 1 or 2 because, you know, I'm not a collector. I'm only going to have the one machine. So, I don't know, I guess it's a different mindset. Um, for one, I mean, for me, uh, you know, Coco 1, 2, whatever, they're not that big. <laughs> and so, um, and the way I use the machines, half the time, they're not really, you know, I don't set them out on a desk with um, with velvet ropes around them or anything anyway. So if I want to do something with a cocoa, a lot of times I have to go and get the parts and set it up or whatever. So if I go get a cocoa two versus getting a cocoa three, 
about the same amount of effort. Um, and, um, yeah, it is an incremental amount of storage to have a two and a three, but you know, they'll both fit in the same cardboard box <laughs> sometimes <laughs> together. Um, so it doesn't seem like a big space commitment to me. Now, granted, I have a lot more than that. Uh, you know, I, I don't have the, all the nice boxes that uh, Boise has, but, you know, I've probably gotten, you know, probably could stack mine uh, about as high as his. So um, does that make me a collector? Well, I also think of them as as um, closer to being daily driver machines in terms of, you know, I don't I don't worry about a lot of retrobriding or if they have a nick or a scratch or if one of the labels peels off or whatever. Um, you know, I don't have a little uh, uh, fit about, oh, my God, I've got to replace that or whatever. I don't know. Uh, so I guess I'm throwing it out there. Do do we see collectors as somehow different from normal cocoa people, or are normal cocoa people typically collectors anyway? <laughs> is is there something different about being a collector versus just being a hobbyist? I guess that's the uh, the, the crux of what I was hoping to talk about. So I'll throw it out to the group. Uh, so we've got of course Neil's with us, um, Mike's here, Boys is here. We're all here. So Anybody have any thoughts on this one? <laughs> I, I'll go first. Well, obviously, there's different levels of collectors. You know, the uh, the auto world uh, comparisons come back again, right? Just like you said, you've got uh, trailer queens and uh, and people that use them for daily drivers, and uh, they're probably both collectors to some degree, uh, but just different kinds. Uh, you know, uh, or any you look at any other collection, uh, people collect Star Wars figures. Some people are happy just to have the rare figures and other people want yeah. them in the package. Um, I don't know that we have a lot of that in the Cocoa community where people want brand spanking new things. I mean, some people do though. They like having a, some pristine package of something. Uh, I guess I consider myself more of a Cocoa hoarder. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I've got odds and ends and every little little bit in the thing. And of course I, I use it all, but, uh, but I take, nice care of uh, the nice stuff I have as, as well. But uh, uh, so, but yeah, it is kind of funny when you, you hear, uh, I guess it's just everybody's preferences of, well, I've got a Coco three. Why would I go backwards to a Coco two? If that's what they started out with. Uh, yeah. But, uh, uh, but like that you said, it's not the Coco three, you know, there, there, the Coco three is not a perfect superset of the Coco two. No, um, that is true. And, and so the the, the semigraphics um, modes, the you know, the extended ones, SG24, SG12, those in particular, there are some capabilities there. And uh, having written a a, uh, a program that takes advantage of one of those is, is sort of near and dear to my heart. So I guess that's the you know the the, one, the time that I saw that reference of well I've got a Coco three and I'm not a collector I'm not going to bother with getting a Coco two. That seemed really foreign to me. And like you say, there are people, I mean, like, you know, there's there's one particular community member who um, is, seems, um, has taken a, a fascination, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, just to, he's made it clear that he's after all the t- the TDP or the you know, Tandy data products, I guess, uh, all those variants of stuff. So the TDP variants of the various cartridges and, of course, the TDP 100 and the there's TDP branded joysticks and stuff like that. That uh, you know he's um, been making a, a point of collecting, and even has a, a website dedicated to it, I believe. So that that's collecting in a 
sort of a separate way, a different way from, um, from, um, you know, like I said, having a, you know, a Coco two and a Coco three and a multi-pack, um, those are kind of collecting the pieces of a full system. Um, but you know, having to have every variation of the joist of the, the joysticks or every variation of the multi-pack, not because you use them, but because, well, they made this one, so I'm going to have to have it. That's probably a more um, unhealthy <laughs> version of collecting. That's the, the I have to have the complete set of action figures kind of version. Yeah, I don't know. No, some people like collecting the rare stuff as well. Like you said, the TDP is going to be a, a more rare. Definitely. And I, I get the rare aspect from it, and so... Uh, I'm sure I have a couple of TDP branded uh, cartridges here and there, um, and they're fine to me. But they're to me they're not any different. They're just a little different mark on the label. But like you said, there are people who they want every version of the label. You know, there's like you know three or four different versions of the label for the Downland cartridge, and people want to have you know the different versions. And you know. I know there's one version of the Downland cartridge that doesn't work on a Coco 3 and another version that does, and I can see having those. And so does that make you a collector if you want the version that works, if you want both versions? Or um, I guess it depends. Um, I mean, I'm definitely fascinated when there are two versions that are different but not necessarily marketed as different. It's always cool to to kind of experience any kind of differences there. But... Um, when you start having to crack open the case and look, oh, look, this uh, resistor value is different on this model number. (laughs) 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 That's a little little quirky. Um, They're using this brand of electrolytic capacitor. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I I can speak to myself because I know this guy called the Coco Collector. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For me, I think of a collector as someone who tries to get at least one of every different variant of something in a in a group or setting. I I don't know if I'm that hardcore about it, but I have collected over the years. And when I say collected, I mean gathered, bought, horse traded, whatever you will, different models of color computer. And because of where I've worked and things like that, I've gotten access to some things that some people haven't, I guess. But uh, I do put those computers away in storage. So I guess you can say I'm collecting them, but I also use, I have no compunction about not using them. I can easily pull them out, turn them on if I want to, and um, take it for a spin or whatever. So if I'm a collector, I'm not one of those guys that, you know, has 50 cars in a garage in the middle of the desert with, uh, you know, humidifiers and or dehumidifiers and air conditioning and covers on each car or anything like that. I do take care of my stuff, but I tend to take them out for a spin every now and then. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I don't get the logic like for someone like John, you said that, uh, Oh, I don't want to get a Coco too. Cause I'm not a collector. I, I mean, one is not the same as the other. They all are interesting right. machines in their own right. So, yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, maybe, maybe it's kind of both. Uh, you know, the, the you know the Coco Two is different from the Coco Three, and so in my mind, it's like that justifies having both. But then I can see where somebody says, "Well, yeah, well they're different, but they're not that different." So 
you know, I'd just be having them for collector's sake, <laughs> trying to, that's yeah. kind of back to the, this version has a different label than that one. And the differences are a little bigger between the two and three, but I can see where you might see them as uh, the same kind of category. <laughs> well, the other thing too, right, is not everybody has the same space as everybody else, right? Some pe- some of us live in apartments, some of us don't. You know, some of us have storage sheds, some of us don't. So it's, it depends on what your ability is to kind of maintain and keep all of that because you just don't want to throw them out in the, you know, in, in an in an environment that they're going to get dirty or messed up or things like that. So sure. I get it. I get it. But, uh, yeah, I've been fortunate to have gotten the pieces I have. And uh, so, in a sense, I'm a collector, but I'm also obviously a user. So I think there's room for both. Cool. Neil, you're quiet. So, well, I'm just taking this all in. But I think maybe to sum it up, um, if you have more than one Coco 3, more than one Coco 2, Coco 1 even for that matter, then that, that would make you a collector. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, even if you had one of each, I guess it starts to be collectors. Uh, <laughs> depends on True. your motivation, right? But although the the Coco three and the two, you know, like you said, it's, it, it, there's a big difference between them, even for software compatibility. So, um, you know, one of each of those, yeah, maybe the Coco one that wouldn't count because that's pretty much the same as the two. Yeah, but even with the Coco twos, you've got the true lowercase versus yeah, the lowercase. right. <laughs> so many well, clearly, here. all of us are actually collectors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. But, um, well, I mean, I guess I'd have to plead guilty. Um, uh, I certainly have too many of them to not be some version of a collector, um, although it's probably not too far from Mike, uh, you know, being a, a hoarder. Um, <laughs> but I just, uh, I just kind of started to collect, uh, acquiring more than I needed uh, with under the notion of uh, – Someday I'm going to want to play Robot Odyssey, and my Coco 2 is going to be dead. I'm going to have to have a, a backup. <laughs> and, um, you know, nowadays I might feel more comfortable thinking I could fix it, but, uh, you know, now I've got a bunch of stuff anyway, so I might as well collect a few more. Uh, That's it. All right, well, have we beaten this one to death? Ooh, I, I think we've got a lot so. out of it, yeah. Yeah, I think so, but... <laughs> But that said, if you have a gimmicks, an AT-306, or an MM-1 for sale, please reach out to me. Oh, my God, yes, of course. <laughs> um, definitely. Uh, anything uh, from that, uh, well, this could be a Coco 4 era, um, <laughs> those would all be great. I'm going to add one thing to this discussion because it sure. kind of fits onto this uh, topic. One thing that I, I've never been a fan of, though, is people out – in the communities buying this stuff up that don't even know what it is and they're sitting on it and then turn around and try to, you know, drive the price up. The speculators, nobody speculators, likes speculators. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for, the speculators, yeah. I yeah. mean, and you see so, it all the time, like, it, you know, even in the retro gaming world, like, uh, you know, the NES cartridges, Atari, all of that stuff. It just... Uh, the only thing I can say to justify some speculation is... Um, is better than having that one weird thing end up in the landfill. True. Uh, yeah. Is you know somewhere there's an AT three hundred six or a bunch of MM ones or whatever that that have been you know thrown to the wind, scattered in the landfills or whatever. 
nobody even knew what they were when they threw them away. Right. Um, so at least nowadays, people, the, a lot of people will at least say, well, some weirdo will pay some money for that one. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, if, as long as we get them to put it on eBay long enough that they figure out it's not actually worth a million dollars and <laughs> sell it for 75 yeah. <laughs> before they get mad and say, well, I'm just going to throw this away anyway. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's not so bad. If they if as long as they're speculators with broken dreams, that's not so bad. But even we didn't buy a New York <laughs> Times uh, Coco. Interview. Yeah, the New York Times guy. <laughs> it's still there. It's still it there. is. It is. Uh, I'm surprised we didn't come across it in our uh, auction review on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So rare doesn't always mean valuable. Well, definitely. That's true. That's yeah. true. Good definitely. So, although it can help the value uh, if you find the right dummy to buy it, which might be me. <laughs> <laughs> if you have something rare, always be sure to offer it to me and uh, see if I'm dumb enough to pay the price you're asking. Uh, I'll take that. All right. Well, that's probably enough. Um, why don't we draw this to a close and uh, take another break, and then uh, we'll be back with the rest of the show. Meet Dr. Bjorn Vittore, one of 3,300 scientists who work on ATLAS, analyzing data from the Large Hadron Collider. We are truly on the brink of discovering the elusive God particle, the particle that gives all other particles mass. When Dr. Vittori needs to crunch numbers quickly, there's only one tool he turns to. I first encountered Dynacogs when I was at Familab in 1984. Our primary field was a Hazelwood Helix running OS9. It looked like a giant power supply with a small 6809 bolt attached. But the operating system was very ahead of its time. Very powerful. We were provided load versus displacement data and used the Dynacalc to determine hysteresis at different positions of coil actuators. Dynacalc handles the calculations where the previous Apple II running VisiCalc simply lacked memory to complete the task. Dynacalc is easy to use, easy to afford, yet sophisticated enough to meet the most demanding requirements. I still keep a Coco 3 in my office with Dynacalc. Just a press of the clear key away. It's an invaluable tool that allows me to enter data and equations quickly. Whether you're performing basic accounting, solving engineering problems, or even searching for the Higgs boson, Dynacalc is up to the task. Dynacalc allows me to perform complex work in a straightforward manner. I wouldn't use any other spreadsheet. Powerful, simple, Dynacalc. Okay. Hello, Coco Cruisers. This is John Linville, and I'm back with a tech segment. <laughs> Haven't done one of these in a while. Uh, kind of got a little burned out, um, but you know, it's the end of our fifth year. Thought maybe I'd uh, take a swing at one. <laughs> so um, I was recently doing some work um, with uh, well, with with some alternative music data for a version of Farfall, and um, so probably have already mentioned that um, I've released that for, for download, so uh, check out the show notes, go find the uh, ROM image, <laughs> and uh, figure out how to play it. Anyway, um, so these um, this music data is also 
what I call uh, a blob. Um, and so, what is, what is a blob? What, is, what does that really mean? So, blob is kind of a jargony term in uh, the computer science or software development world uh, for um, uh, a binary large object. You get it, B L O B. That's a collection of binary data. According to Wikipedia, a blob is a collection of binary data stored as a single entity in a database management system. Um, blobs are typically images, audio, or multimedia objects. Blah, blah, blah. kind of goes on from there. So it doesn't, this says for database management, it's kind of a term used more broadly than that. But basically, just any kind of chunk of data that... Um, there's sort of a bunch of bytes treated as one thing. <laughs> that's that's what a blob is, um, at least in terms uh, we're recording here. So, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, so as I was working on that alternative version of Farfall with the different music tracks, I was trying out different tracks and moving them around. I edited some of them because they were um, they were written in music macro language, which um, um, is a uh, a way to encode, basically to encode sheet music for the computer to then uh, interpret. Um, and so some of them didn't were either too long or somehow a little wrong. Didn't you know they didn't loop right or something like that. So I was making some changes to the sheet music and uploading them, and sometimes trying different tracks or moving things around or whatever. So. So going through a process with these big blobs of data, making a lot of changes, and um, kind of the um, well, the way I started with data in the code was fine, but not super convenient for making a lot of changes. Um, so I kind of went through a couple of iterations and tried different things, and um, thought some of that was worth sharing, and um, been doing some other thinking about other things I could have done or, or similar things things I've done in other projects, whatever. They're all kind of in the same group. So I thought I'd share some of that with you and call it a tech segment. <laughs> so, still with us? All right. So, like I said, what's in a blob? Well, could, a blob could be anything. And it's basically, it's typically a set of binary values grouped together into coherent units of kind of higher level data. So, um, one big example area would be graphics data, so that might be a, a, a background for a game or something like that, or it might be the sprites, you know, the things that move or the, you know, the objects that you can handle in the game, that sort of thing. Um, also, kind of in the general area of games, but um, audio or music data, you know, that could be. Um, it could be samples for, for the shifting through the DAC, so, so like a voice message or whatever, kind of like the high score sound at, uh, in Farfall when you get a high score. Um, or, or um, it could also be the collection of registered data for feeding sound chips like this, the SN76489 and the Game Master cartridge, or the AY38910 or 12 or whatever it is that's in the... The, the Coco GMC or uh, the speech sound pack, whatever. Um, anyway, so it's just it's just a bunch of bytes that kind of has a, a, an identity as a as a collective group. Um, and so, 
uh, on a little note here is if you have a disc based game uh, you might just as easily store your blobs as separate files on the disc and so if that gives you an idea of what sorts of things we're talking about um, you know like I said images or, or sound data or whatever it's just big blocks of data that um, um, kind of have their own identity so <laughs> let's see moving on so how do you handle them in your assembly language program uh, I'm not going to talk about every possible language or whatever some of these might with some of these concepts at least might transfer to other languages certainly to C maybe the you know basic or whatever uh, some similar ideas but I'm going to confine my comments here to, to assembly language and because uh, that's complicated enough <laughs> Um, but so the simplest thing to do is, is represent um, the your blob data um, in in a hexadecimal format um, or even a even a decimal format if you prefer that. But just to put it straight into the assembly code um, using uh, you know normal data pseudo ops like uh, FCB or FDB or you know some assemblers have the, the fancier versions for dealing with strings or different formats of data or whatever anyway you can put those in you can put them manually in to your source code you might translate the data directly especially originally when you're entering the code for or the data for a like a a, a sprite you know a mario character or something like that and that first time you'll do it and then Hopefully you never have to do it again <laughs> because um, now this technique, uh, like I said, is manually editing, you know, putting in numbers like 3C, 4F, 9, 1, 2, 7, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, so it's, it's tedious and it's kind of error prone, uh, especially if you need to make a lot of changes. Um, and, you know, it does require directly editing the source file. Um, which can be problematic. Uh, you might need, you know, it depends on how you work. Sometimes you may want to keep the, the editor open on some actual logic portion of the program, and then you're going to have to change the graphics portion of the program. It, it can be weird to have to interleave those things. Anyway, it's something you have to do. Um, but it does work. I mean, it's just a matter of doing doing the editing, and, and you know, there's no real magic here. Um... But if you want to go beyond that, um, you can use a tool to assist you. So if you have, you know, like your binary data already in a file, like something you've captured from a graphics program or something like that, um, or a um, like a WAV file or something, or data taken from a WAV file, you can do your translation um, with a tool to assist you. So for example. Um, uh, we did the we talked about the tool XXD a while back, which is kind of a you know it's almost like a, a hex editor uh, or command line version of a hex editor. And so XX has an, XXD has an an option a dash i option, uh, which I guess means XXD dash include, but <laughs> it's really telling you to output in an include file format. And I put um, the so it'll take your binary data in from the file. And produce a C style um, include file with a, a struct um, that uh, that has the hexadecimal data represented the binary data from your file in the like I said in the C um, I think the character array. Um, 
and that's fine, especially if you're going to be importing right into C code. <laughs> um, that's a, that'll probably work fine. Um, of course, the problem is is that output may not really be may not really match what you want what your assembler wants to see. Uh, certainly not going to come out saying FCB or FDB or whatever. Um, so you're going to have to take that output, save it to a file, and then do some editing on that file. Um, and um, or the data in the file either, uh, and so you're gonna have to take off the 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 C um, structure uh, statements and and brackets and stuff, and for you'll probably need to go through and change um, where it'll have like a zero x to, to indicate a hexadecimal value, and then change that to to have a dollar sign for the assembler. Um, depending on what your assembler is, uh, you may need to remove um, the spaces between uh, the the data values. Um, uh, may need to translate, um, you know, take comments off at the end of the line, put in uh, different kinds of formatting stuff. <laughs> it can be done, um, and you know, so that if you only have to do it once, it might be a little tedious and certainly a little error prone, but. If you only have to do it once, it's not a big deal. So if you somehow generated the data, and then one time you had to put it into your um, your source file, especially if it's not very big, it shouldn't be a big deal. If you're using an editor like VI, and you're a master of it so that you can uh, do regular expression uh, changes on the code, then it's probably not a big deal. I was able to, to, to do some of this, and um, well four or five commands I could have the 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 C header style output converted over to an assembly language source file no big deal <laughs> um, but if you're using Emacs or or some even less capable editor um, th there may be a whole lot of uh, arrow 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 shift 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 whatever <laughs> delete delete you know a whole lot of that to do depending on the size of your file so kind of depends on you um, now, you may be able to filter the output of your tool, especially if it's XXD. For example, if you're on a Unix-style system, you uh, do your XXD-I and then filter it through uh, to a sed command. And um, you can probably do that, figure, figure out a set of filter commands for that and make it just a, you know, a one, one press the button and it works. Or uh, you might be able to feed it all through some sort of custom tool, um, which would, you know, similarly take some time to develop your custom tool, but once you have it in place, it could do the conversion for you. And you could do it again and again with your tools. Again, not that big a deal. Now, depending on your how you're doing things, uh, you may still need to, to edit your assembly language source file to make these changes to... to get rid of the old version of, of the data, read in the new version of the data, save it. Yeah, it's a pain in the butt, but you could do it. Now, if you can do your conversion directly to a, a properly formatted file, many assemblers do offer an include style capability if you're a C programmer or many other high-level languages have some version of, of include or use or some other command like that that basically says... At this point in the source program, um, process the input like it's coming from this other uh, file and then t until you get to the end of that file and then return here. Um, and so um, 
you can do that and um, you know for example LWSM has an include directive and um, it works really well and um, so rather than having to edit the file you just would put in one line that says include and whatever the converted version of your uh, your data uh, the, the file that you converted from your binary data to your assembly language version of the data you just would include that and then in your main source file you can use labels to define addresses for like the start of your blob of data maybe the end of your blob of data um, works pretty well uh, now if you do this um, I assume you're using make if you're not using make it's probably because you don't understand make <laughs> um, or you know or you're one of those guys that thinks that more modern tools are automatically better but um, anyway uh, if you're using make or something like make that builds that does code builds based on dependencies of, of whatever then you need to make sure to update that tool so that so that when your binary you know, when your blob file gets updated um, it will um, regenerate your dependencies which probably means you need the original dependency on the original binary file to so that if it changes you recreate the the source version of that and then you'll need to, to uh, take it when that when the source version of the data file uh, changes then that'll regenerate um, the force it to rebuild the uh, the actual program <laughs> Uh, otherwise, you're going to wonder, well, I made this change in my um, my graphics file, but the graphics still looks the same. <laughs> um, anyway, well, that's just basic program development stuff, but uh, just a reminder. So hopefully a word to the wise is sufficient on that. Okay, so that covers when your blob is being handled as a text file. Um, but what about if you want to just take your blob data and just use it directly and so there's a couple of variations on this but essentially in this case what you're going to do is you're going to take that original blob data file and you're just going to jam it right into the the build object you know whatever comes out of the build process that's going to be some chunk of it is going to be the exactly the same as the, the binary data input there's a couple of ways you can do this one way is just as part of the thinking about your program you can just uh, think about where your program is being loaded into memory and you can allocate space for your blob as part of the memory map um, if you need to define any addresses like the beginning of the memory map or, or th that sort of stuff, the beginning of your blob rather you can use um, EQU or Equate or, or whatever kind of pseudo-ops your assembler has um, and um, define the addresses that you need and then when it comes time to build your your ROM image or whatever then you just use the file utilities on your build machine and shuffle them together as appropriate now you need to understand what memory is going to look like and how it's being loaded and you know, what offsets are being used to load your program and all that sort of thing but you know like you said you basically use uh, you know, CAT and LS or CP or, you know, those kind of tools and just to shuffle together both the um, the actual program image that you're building uh, from your assembler and then your binary data file has to go in the right space and 
you may have to figure out something to generate a little padding or whatever to make sure things get offset correctly in memory. Um, anyway, it works. You can do that. Um, and so it's something to do if you, especially if you enjoy a lot of shell scripting or whatever. <laughs> um, it may be fun, but if your assembler offers um, an include binary capability. Um, then that's probably a better option. And so, um, in this case, you'd, um, you could use normal assembler labels for generating any addresses you need to reference, like for the beginning of the blob or the end of the blob. Um, you just put labels in your source code and, and um, you know, then you put in your directive to, to include your blob at the proper place. Um, in LWSM, there's a include bin directive and it works pretty much like the include um, except instead of including source that gets processed it just includes um, from a binary file and as if you've as if it's automatically doing the uh, the FCBs or whatever for you um, so it's pretty handy <laughs> and like I say your data goes straight in um, uh, you know it's it's um, well, it's, it's, I recommend this format, uh, this version, basically, um, for most cases. Um, got one little note here. Don't forget the make file on this one either. <laughs> so it's a little bit simpler, perhaps. So you don't have to worry about an original binary file generating a, a, a source version of the binary, then that being a dependency on the actual program. Um, you basically can just make sure that the program build is dependent on the data binary. And so it's only one step. <laughs> um, so a little bit easier in one line that, or one change, change to one line in the make file um, if you're using make. Um, but anyway, that's that's it. That's most of the advice I was wanting to give you. But when I was coming through this, I was thinking about the, there's one other option that you could do if you want to include blobs in, um, um, you know, in your assembly source or in your programs. This is essentially more or less what I did for my um, uh, Coca 3 video player. And uh, um, so this is what I call the independent blob. <laughs> and uh, in, um, in that case, you assume that your blob is especially either is already in memory when the program runs, um, and uh, which is not quite what the, the video player does, but. <laughs> Maybe it's more like Sluzzle, uh, where things get loaded, um, the video images get loaded um, separately. But anyway, um, you, again, you would go off and think about where your program is going to be loaded in memory, and you'd allocate space for your blob in the memory map. And if you need to reference the blob, like the beginning of the blob or whatever, you'd use an you know, EQU or you know, equate or whatever statements, whatever pseudo ops you have for allocating the addresses or to define the addresses. Uh, but you, you're pretty much on your own, but you would do it. Um, and then uh, write your program, uh, you know, right there. Your program source doesn't reference the blob at all except by referencing those addresses. Um, and so then the, the one last... Um, uh, part of this is you're going to have to use some sort of loader for your program. So um, typically there would be something in your basic program that 
that does a load M or C load M of an object or, or you know, or maybe a lot of disk access and posts or whatever. But you, somehow or another you'll have to load the program in manually with your loader or load the data in as you're loading your program. Anyway, um, that, um, that'll work and, uh, in this case, you, you don't have any de dependency on your assembler. There's nothing in your assembly code that, that um, you know, is doing anything really to help you in this case, <laughs> other than, you know, the ability to use an, an EQU or something like that. And, of course, in this case, uh, your blob can change all at once, but you won't have to rebuild your program because your program doesn't really depend on the blob for anything in its actual file either. So, in some ways, this is the cleanest option, um, but it does require the most upfront planning, or at least as much upfront planning as anything else. Plus, you'll need your basic loader or something. So, not necessarily the best option, not necessarily the worst option. Like I said, I pretty well did this in Sluzzle, did something kind of like this in the, the, um, in the um, video player. Anyway, if you're programming assembly language, you ought to understand the things like where things are in memory. Um, anyway, so maybe not so bad, but well, that's probably it. <laughs> so, uh, haven't done a, a tech segment in a couple of months. Uh, hope you, uh, enjoy that I'm back and, um, give us some feedback. I got a lot of feedback when I said I might not do as many tech segments. I got a lot of feedback saying we love the tech segments and please do them. Then I did a few and then didn't do a few and, didn't get many tech segments telling me how much you missed them. <laughs> so, um, I assume that uh, maybe you just figured they'd come back eventually, and I guess you were right. Um, but anyway, uh, I'd love to hear your feedback on the topic or on any other topics, um, whether or not they relate to me or the show or whatever. Well, hopefully they relate to the show. But anyway, we'll be good. Enjoy Coco Forever. Um, and uh, we'll get you back to the rest of the show now. Thanks. This commercial is going out to you, Boise. Un ordinateur couleur qui a de la personnalité. Le Coco 2 de Radio Sac. On solde pour Noël à partir de 149,95. Welcome to This Month in Cocoa History, where we explore events in the life of our favorite home computer. I'm Boise Pete, and this month we take a look back 37 years to April 1983 and the genesis of an important annual event. The very first Rainbow Fest took place April 22nd through the 24th of 1983 in a suburb of Chicago, Illinois. Several thousand attendees crammed the Mayoral Ballroom Exhibit Hall of the Regency Hyatt Woodfield for Friday evening and all day Saturday and Sunday, where rooms were only $43 a night. Vendors such as Frank Hall Labs, Tom Mix Software, and Endicott Software showed their wares at tables and booths spread throughout the exhibit floor. Notable Coco author Don Inman gave the Saturday morning breakfast address to ticket holders. Seminars included technical topics from Fred Skirbo, Dr. Hal Snyder, Charlie Rosland, E.R. Bailey, Lonnie Falk, 
Tom Nelson, and Steve Bjork, among others. Pages 122 and 123 of the July 1983 issue of the Rainbow Magazine featured photos from the event. Over the years, Rainbow Fests would be held in New Jersey, California, and even Texas, but the Chicago Rainbow Fest was the most long-lived event. Even after the last Rainbow Fest in that city in 1991, the tradition has continued non-stop with the Glenside-sponsored Cocoa Fests. Speed Racer from Mistron. Speed Racer is a supercar race game that puts you behind the wheel with incredible school 3D graphics. It's simply the finest car race game ever written for the Coco. Just $34.95, Discord take, 32K required. From Mistron. Welcome back to Neil's Corner on episode 59, the fifth year of creating this podcast. And ooh, do I ever have a treat for you on this edition of Neil's Corner. I've got Mark McDougall from Australia for part two, talking about night lore creation for the Coco 3. In this segment, you will hear him dive deeper into the technical aspects of transcoding from the Spectrum Z80 code to Coco 3 6809 code. A technical segment on News Corner? What? Can it be, you ask? Oh, it sure can. All right, Mark, take it away. So welcome back to my talk on my night lore port for the Coco 3. In part one, I talked about the general approach, some technical considerations, and brought it up to the point where I had my reverse-engineered, fully-commented source code for the ZX Spectrum version in Z80 Assembler. And in this part, I'll talk about the process of actually writing the 6809 port, and we'll see how far I get. Now that I've got Nightlaw source code, the fun really starts. But how do you actually start on a port or transcode? It really comes down to personal preference to a degree, and also the nature and structure of the game you're doing. Some people like to start development with the very first thing you see, the title screen. Personally, that's the last thing I want to code. My preference is to go straight to the core functionality. If for no other reason, then you're more likely to find any potential showstoppers sooner rather than later, minimizing the amount of wasted effort. And I have made this mistake in the past myself. So for Night Law, I implemented the skeleton of the main loop and then started on the code that renders each room. And given the nature of Night Law, there was a reasonable amount of code that had to be transcoded before anything was visible. Instantiation of the graphics data which, in this case, did not require any conversion process at all. Low-level object rendering routines, which for the most part were written from scratch for the Coco 3 rather than transcoded. Instantiation of the map data. And finally, parsing of the map data and calling the aforementioned low-level routines before I got to see the first room rendered in all its glory. That was a pretty exciting milestone, given the visually impressive graphics of the game. Of course, there were no dynamic objects moving around, no animation, and no way to move between rooms. I hadn't written the code that parsed the map data to allow you to move between rooms. So it was one static room. So almost immediately, the next change I made was to patch the code with random rooms just to see other rooms rendered and checked that all the different object types were rendered correctly. 
So let's stop here for a bit and talk about this transcoding process. What the aim here is, is to have the target CPU execute the same logic as the source CPU, manipulating the same data, making the same decisions, and ending up with the same results, and hopefully taking a similar amount of time to do it. The CPU in the ZX Spectrum, the Z80 microprocessor, is a reasonably different beast to the Coco 3 6809. Whilst it is clocked quite a bit faster, fortunately for us, a lot of the equivalent instructions take more clock cycles to execute, meaning that they're roughly on par with one another in their capacity to process data, especially considering other bottlenecks in the ZX Spectrum's design, for example, video memory contention. However, the extended register set of the Z80, including the alternate register bank, make mapping registers from one to the other not quite so straightforward. Fortunately, Nightlaw didn't make too much use for the alternate register set, which made things a little easier. But the 8-16-bit nature of the Z80 register pairs did sometimes cause a little headache. The Z80 code used the index registers IX and IY exclusively as pointers into the main data structures, which did make life quite a bit easier. That's because the 6809, of course, has the X and Y index registers with very similar capabilities. So it was almost a given that any Z80 instruction using IX or IY could be transcoded to the equivalent 6809 instruction using X or Y, and there were a lot of those instructions. But what about the rest? In general, I tried to use a consistent mapping where possible, but it was not a hard and fast rule by any means, and I think this is where the reverse engineering allowed me to hand optimize the code a lot more than any brute force or programmatic transcode could. The single 8-bit accumulator, A, on the Z80, was generally mapped to the 6809A register for obvious reasons, but that really only left B and the stack pointers for everything else. B was generally used for any 8-bit register on the Z80 that was in use at the time, whilst U was used for any 16-bit register. S was reserved exclusively as the stack pointer, effectively mirroring the Z80S stack pointer register. Fortunately, Nightlaw didn't make excessive use of the Z80 registers, and rarely were register values persistent between routines. In fact, a lot of uses were simply performing the sometimes clumsy arithmetic on the Z80 and could be replaced by hand-optimized code requiring less 6809 registers, such as utilizing the D register for 16-bit operations or 16-bit memory reads. So, whilst parameters were usually passed in registers to routines, the scope of the registers were localized and was fairly free to remap registers uniquely within each routine and not have them affect anything else. In cases where I did require an extra register, I reserved a byte on the direct page for each Z80 register. For whatever reason, it turned out that the Z80C register was the one register that caused the most problems. Of course, I was mindful of the fact that the memory mapped implementation would suffer a performance hit over an actual CPU register, but there wasn't an overly excessive number of times I had to resort to that, and it's not as if I had a choice anyway. Of course, there were times during the transcode that I'd assigned one 6809 register, only to decide further down the track that it wasn't the best choice. 
and I'd have to then shuffle registers around and or rewrite a portion of a routine. At times I'd review the code and simply decide it could be better optimised for the 6809 by switching registers around, all at the same time ensuring that I wasn't altering the code logic. So, in a nutshell, I try to stick with a consistent mapping where possible, but also be prepared to also break the rule when it was either necessary or just made sense. So back to transcoding night law specifically. As I mentioned earlier, the resulting 6809 code had the same data and code labels as the original Z80 disassembly, the same code structure, the same routines with the same parameters, and even ordered in the source code in the same manner as the original code. If you like, not too dissimilar to translating a book to another language. Once I had the room rendering routines done and tested, it was time to fill out more of the top-level logic in order to allow me to move around the map. Nightlaw renders the static portions of the screen when you first enter a room and then builds a list of all the dynamic objects, including the player. Then the main loop iterates through that list, using a jump table to handle each object type in the room. Obviously, I had to write the code that builds the list, but then it was a simple matter to fill the jump table with pointers to a stub routine before starting to replace them one by one with actual object handlers in whatever order I saw fit. Early on, there were a few common routines with some mathematics to transcode, such as collision detection and priority encoding, which required particular attention to details, such as signed versus unsigned instructions, for example. But fortunately, Z80 versus 6809 handle those in an almost identical fashion, unlike the 6502, but that's another story. After working through a handful of object handlers, the transcode process had become a little easier. As you can imagine, object handlers all use similar code to access similar data structures and call common routines to render graphics. It was also relatively straightforward to test each ob object handler as the code was completely decoupled from other objects. I just needed to patch the startup to place me in a room containing the object under test and comprising a significant portion of the game's code, by the time I had worked through all the objects, there wasn't a whole lot left to port across. So finishing the last object handler was a significant milestone in the porting process. The game was all but playable by then, and what was left was the special handlers for things like end of game, main menu, that sort of thing. Speaking of the end of the game, I wasn't anywhere near good enough to play through to the end of the game to test when you win the game. I can say that there are definitely no bugs when you lose the game though. That's been thoroughly tested. Of course, I patched the data structures, not the code, to allow me to win the game within a few moves. So I can be reasonably confident that most, if not all of the code paths, have been tested. The sound turned out to be trivial. I had made it a point to code all the sound logic, short of the actual hardware I.O., during the transcode process whenever the game called them. 
I knew that the mechanism would be the same and expected, or to be honest rather hoped, that it would actually sound the same. The main menu music was the first sound I heard, and in the end, a few 6809 instructions was all it took to add full sound to the previously completely silent Coco 3 port. There was some tweaking of delays to get it sounding right, but it wasn't a lot of work. And a bit of trivia on the implementations. Like most games, Nightlaw has sprites that can be mirrored or flipped in the game, such as when a creature changes directions. Data for the 103 distinct sprites occupies almost 16k of RAM, before any such flipping. Obviously, it would be impossible on a Spectrum with 48k of RAM to store all four orientations of each sprite, so the code actually flips or mirrors sprites in place in the sprite data table before rendering to the screen, setting a flag to indicate the current orientation. Subsequent calls check the orientation, and of course only flip or mirror if required. However, there is no algorithm to determine the optimal order of sprite rendering, so it's quite possible that a single sprite may be flipped or mirrored several times on the one display frame. Now, the author of the Atari 8-bit port implemented a cache of recently used sprites in order to alleviate multiple flip or mirror operations. I considered instead storing pre-flipped or mirrored sprites on separate pages of memory on the Coco 3, but ultimately decided it wasn't necessary. And that same author realized that the original Z-Order algorithm could be optimized while porting Pentagram, and I'll explain the connection later, to the Atari 8-bit computers. There were three routines in the Spectrum code that used self-modifying code. Not specifically for execution speed, but rather minimise the amount of code that had to be written. Two of those cases translated well to 6809, offering the same benefit. The third may very well have two, but it was a handful of instructions that were executed only once each time you visited a room, so a simple loop sufficed. The main game loop incorporated a tight delay loop based on the number of objects in the room, so that rooms with less than six objects to render didn't run too fast. Otherwise, the loop ran as fast as possible, with visible slowdown in busy rooms. The delay count on the 3.5 MHz Z80 was 1,280 whilst a value of 4096 appeared to give a similar result on the 1.89 MHz 6809. Of course, along the way there were a few stumbling blocks. Any manual process has the potential for human error, and transcoding Z80 instructions to 6809 is certainly no exception. But with a Z80 source code, modern tools like MAME with its debugger, and, at times, my C port as well, thankfully, most bugs didn't elude me for too long. Now, there are actually a couple of bugs in the original game. The first I encountered was a purely cosmetic graphical glitch, and I have to admit, I did spend a bit of time trying to track it down, to no avail. It's nothing more than a few stray pixels near the left edge of the rendering of a room that occurs in rare, but, as it turns out, deterministic circumstances. Eventually, I thought to go back to the ZX Spectrum to see if it occurred, and, to my relief, it did. 
and because it was all about the truly authentic experience, it was definitely going to stay in the Coco 3 port. The second was a logic error that was, as I discovered, benign on the spectrum. Without going into details, it dereferences a null pointer and ultimately results in a write to location 0, which is ROM on the spectrum, but on the C port it resulted in the player dropping through the floor and wrapping around to the top of the screen indefinitely. I found that by trapping a write to location 0 on the ZX Spectrum version in the main debugger and stepping back through the CPU trace. This time though, it made sense to fix the bug on all ports, ASM and C. Once the port was essentially completely debugged, I turned my attention to optimizing the 6809 code. At this point, I hadn't done any formal comparison of execution speed, but the slowdown on busy screens was quite significant. Throughout the transcoding process, I did my best to write fairly optimal 6809 code without obsessing over it to the nth degree, but I had always intended on returning to the object rendering routines, so this is where I started. Anyone who has tried to write highly optimized 6809 code, hi Simon, will know that it takes a certain level of experience to get so far, and even more to get as far as possible. I'm sorry to say that although I can certainly write 6809 code, I actually don't have a great depth of experience. So there were many occasions I had to flip through my various 6809 references. I was, for example, quite shocked to see how expensive the register transfer instructions actually were. I also learned that the same instruction had different cycle counts when operating on different registers. As you can imagine, the low-level rendering routines went through a number of iterations before I was running out of ideas. In the end, I didn't go as far as using any self-modifying code in the rendering, but I did make a distinction between the general case of sprite rendering and the case where it was byte-aligned in video memory. I did take an interesting diversion after optimizing the rendering routines. The slowdown was still quite noticeable, and not being sure where to turn my attention to next, I decided to try to do some profiling on the code to see where it was spending most of its time. Instead of resorting to my favorite tool, MAME, I looked to VCC because I needed to modify the emulator itself to give me profiling information. And as it turns out, VCC already has instruction cycle counts built into it, and it was almost trivial to add crude profiling to the source. The first task was to have it import the address labels, symbols, from the 6809 assembler output, so that the profiling information could easily be attributed to each routine. Then I simply needed to keep track of the call stack, so I could accumulate cycle counts for each individual routine. Then, on exit from the emulator, print a table with total cycles and overall percentage spent in each routine. Simple! Ha! When is anything with computers quite that simple? Never. Although the night law code was beautifully structured, it wasn't perfect, and besides the few cases of returning back up the call stack by popping a return address, it also jumped back into the main loop when the player died. I knew that because I had the source code, and subsequently VCC knew that because I had hard-coded a few magic addresses that adjusted the context of the profiling algorithm. Unfortunately, what the profiler was telling me was that I had already optimized the worst offending routines. 
Fortunately, after going back to the ZX Spectrum emulator and running Night Law again, it soon became apparent that the Coco 3 version was actually no slower and, in some cases, a little faster than the original. At this point, I could finally call the port done. So, packaging it all up. In an earlier Coco 3 project, I had conditional assembly directives to produce either cartridge or floppy disk versions of the binary. For Night Law, I realised there was no reason why they had to be any different. So I wrote a simple loader for the floppy version that loaded the ROM cartridge binary image into RAM and jumped to the cartridge entry point. Naturally, that simplified programming, building, maintenance and debugging, effectively only having a single binary. I took the opportunity to add some text to the loader on the floppy disk. I also have a full-colour Coco 3 rendering of the original ZX Spectrum title slash loading screen on the floppy disk that I could display, but have not yet incorporated it into the loader. So, let's just call it an Easter egg. Unfortunately, there's no room at all on a 32k cartridge for it, so it would require the extra expense of banked cartridge hardware to add it. Being such a popular game on the Spectrum, it attracted a lot of attention from gamers and even modders, including a fellow by the name of Mick Farrow who, by most accounts, improved on the original monochrome graphics using simple shading techniques. I actually contacted Mick, who kindly gave his blessing for me to include them in an alternate build, and I did exactly that. However, that has not been released at this point. There were ports to other machines of similar capabilities, including the Z80-based Amstrad CPC. The graphics were very similar to the original ZX Spectrum version, with the exception that they were rendered in 4 colour mode, and it looked pretty good too. On first glance, it's counterintuitive, but the sprite data for the 4 colour graphics is the same size as that for the monochrome sprites on the ZX Spectrum. The explanation is that the monochrome graphics pixel data also requires pixel mask data to differentiate between solid black and transparent pixels. Hence, both modes require 2 bits per pixel. I actually updated the C port to support the 4 color mode on the Amiga and the Neo Geo. I made a very preliminary start on the Coco 3 version, but by then was completely burnt out and couldn't muster the motivation to continue. Following the success of Nightlaw, the Stamper Brothers released a further two games based on the same engine. The first was Alien 8, with a space theme, before returning to a Magic and Monsters theme with the aforementioned Pentagram. I've taken a quick look at the source code for both, and it is, as you can imagine, very similar. It would be a far easier job now to transcode both games to the Coco 3, and I may yet do so. One catch is that Alien 8 uses colour to differentiate between either rooms or objects within the game, so you'd be forced to use more colours on the Coco 3 than I did for Night Law. Pentagram also improved on the engine. Rumours were it was even handed to a third party to code, allowing the player to shoot at other objects in the game. However, my understanding is that rather than introduce a new mechanic in the source code, bullets are treated the same as any other object in the game all associated logic being handled in their object handler. That's pretty clever, in my opinion. Whilst working on the Nightlaw transcode for the Coco 3, I had big plans for it. It would have been nice to release a cartridge with all three games rendered in colour, for example. 
and my Amiga and Neo Geo ports actually allow you to choose at runtime whether to use the original Spectrum graphics, Mick Faro graphics or four color CPC graphics. There were other machines I'd intended to release on, mainly 16 and 32-bit systems that could run the C version. However, by the time I'd finished the port, I was a little burnt out on all things Night Law, and other projects piqued my interest, like Asteroids. And even then, real life had intervened, and as a result in the last 12 months, or perhaps even 24, I haven't worked on anything retro-related at all. Ultimately, I had planned to make my own game using the engine, primarily to be run on the Coco 3, so that meant more 6809 coding rather than C. I'm not going to reveal any details at this time, but the game theme has been well and truly decided. As most of you know, the Coco 3 version of Night Law is now available via Neil on either cartridge or floppy disk. Personally, I feel that the game is deserving of a tangible release, and can't thank Neil enough for the opportunity to have a boxed cartridge sitting on my shelf as I write this segment. The idea was never to make any money out of it, it's not my IP after all, but rather bring this seminal title to the Coco 3 to be enjoyed by those that otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity, and to allow collectors to have something new to be displayed on their shelves. Incidentally, if you Google around the net, you'll find some interesting information on the game, including a pretty cool isometric map of the entire game generated from actual screenshots. A project named Nightlaw 2006 attempts to render the graphics in full 3D on modern platforms, and several other ports and remakes of the game can be found without too much difficulty. Nightlaw also adorns the cover of Retro Gamer magazine issue number 126, complete with a feature article. My commented disassembly of the ZX Spectrum code is freely available on my Retroports blog page. I'll ask Neil to include a link in the show notes. Eventually, I will release the 6809 and C source codes after I'm satisfied that I'm done playing around with them. And now, a few final reflections. All up, my hobby time was completely consumed with night lore from mid-August 2015 to end of March 2016. Almost eight months. I started with the disassembly and then end of September started on the seaport before disassembly was complete. Both were finished together around end of January 2016. I spent a further month playing with various seaports before starting on the Coco 3 transcode towards the end of February, somehow done in just five weeks by the last day of March. I should point out that a lot of the 6809 code was written whilst on a two-week overseas work trip, where I'd say I was between three and four times as productive as I would have been at home. Well, that's about all I can think to say on the subject of Night Law. Any questions or comments are welcome, and probably easiest to direct to me via the Coco mailing list. And thanks for listening, and I have to ask, got your Night Law cartridge yet? And what a great cartridge it is indeed. Well, I hope all of you enjoyed Mark's technical segment, and perhaps learned a thing or two. I sure have, that's for sure. Well, until next month, happy Coco Gaming, and retro forever. Learn how to use your computer for more than just games with Hot Cocoa Magazine. 
PotCoco is packed with business application programs, home management help, programming tips and tutorials, product reviews, and more. Subscribe for just $24.97 for 12 issues. That's 30% off the newsstand price. Let Hot Cocoa show you how much time you can save with your color computer. And save even more time with Instant Cocoa, the cassette version of Hot Cocoa Magazine, containing all of the programs that appear in the issue. See the latest issue of Hot Cocoa Magazine for details. Hot Cocoa, available at fine retailers everywhere. All right, Cocoa Cruisers. We're interviewing Mr. George Dorner. Uh, George, I understand, has a... OS9 background. <laughs> George, welcome to the Cocoa Crew Podcast. Glad to be here. We're definitely eager to hear from you. So why don't you kind of introduce yourself a little bit, tell us how you got involved with OS9 and, you know, what sort of your, um, for lack of a better words, your, your claim to fame in the, in the uh, Cocoa world. I was an administrator. I say my title was the Dean of Technical Stuff. At a big two-year college about a mile from Motorola World Headquarters, we started teaching with the 6800, learned about RT-68, which was a an EEPROM that uh, Microware in Des Moines sold, which was a real-time interrupt-driven operating system and about, gosh, I think it was 1K. <laughs> it, was, it was small. And they sold it so that it would plug into the demonstration board for the 6800 that Motorola sold and gave to prospective uh, users. And we used those to teach with. The RT-68 allowed us to put a terminal on these little boards that had uh, six LEDs and a hex pad. And that was really the, the way microprocessors started in our electronics department. And learning of microware, we learned about Basic 09 and how it came to pass. And uh, that's an interesting story in itself. Basic 09 led to OS 9. Boise can help on this because he knows the people, but the uh, principals at microware in Des Moines, I think, were Drake University students, graduate students. And they did a lot of work, software work, as a part of their graduate work. That's how they got tabbed to develop a basic for the 6809. It was the idea of a fellow from at Motorola in Texas named Terry Ritter. And he said basic has been popular for the hobbyists for the 6502. And that basic was actually Microware's, Microsoft's first product. And um, told Motorola, why don't we get something that'll boost the 6809 long and the hobby. So they did that. These guys developed Basic 09 as a much more structured language, and it was piled basic rather than an interpretive basic. They were looking to have an 8K basic, and when they got done, they had a 24K basic. <laughs> then they developed the operating system. And while they were talking about developing an operating system, somebody in the physics department said, hey, you ought to look at this uh, operating system called Unix, which they did. And that, that is what caused them to aim OS 9 at a Unix lookalike large degree. So that's how I got involved with OS 9, learned of OS 9. And then they had the first meeting of microware or customers in Des Moines, and I had a travel budget, and so I went. And that, i got to say, that was one of the more interesting meetings I've ever been to. Uh, there were representatives, a representative there from Ford, because they were using it somewhere. 
There was a representative there from CERN in uh, Switzerland, the European uh, Atomic Research Group. And there were a couple of guys in bib overalls with long beards. <laughs> and that was quite a group, quite a group. Everybody was excited about OS9. It was quite different than the other operating systems that were available. CPM was one of the main ones, and it was sort of a dog. So that's how I got interested. The second year of that meeting, the users group formed. Dale Puckett, who interviewed here some time back, and how, actually how I found you was through looking for Dale, was very interested in that interview because Dale was the president as of that second meeting, that organizing meeting, and I was the treasurer, the national treasurer. So I worked with Dale quite a bit. And that's how we got involved. There was a fellow before Dale who was the president named Brian Capuch from northern Indiana, and he was a good guy, still around, still living in northern Indiana. And he was using OS9, doing uh, computer work for farmers. <laughs> and huh. he was a farmer of sorts. So that was really unusual background to have something in the, hmm. in the great Midwest pop up uh, in competition with stuff that was coming out of the West Coast and the East Coast. George, I have a question. Whenever you started attending the OS9 seminars that Mike were put on and became involved in the OS9 users group, do you remember when Tandy actually announced OS9 for the Coco? Were you around for that? Do you remember that? The announcement, no. It sort of sneaked up on me because the, the Coco was out, but all of a sudden... By golly, here's the OS9 on my favorite operating system at the time, and it's available on a Cocoa. So I got one right away, and it took a while before I got it working. But I did a little bit, for, and then I got a Cocoa 2, got involved with the Glenside Color Computer Club. I don't remember the announcement from Tandy. Stuff like that did get announced. Fujitsu brought a, a system. A couple of young Japanese guys showed up with a very fancy system. It looked like a PC, and it ran OS 9. We had a gimmicks computer, which was made in Chicago, and I know about the history of that machine. It was rather interesting. The wealthy fellow who owned the company had a nice house on the North Shore of Lake Michigan, and he wanted to automate the house came upon this young man who knew about computers. I don't think he was a, I don't think he was a schooled engineer, but he knew a lot. And he designed the gimmicks and designed a board for it that held a lot of, uh, I think, eight PIAs on the card. So that gave him a lot of lines to control things with. And I believe that's how the gimmicks computer came to be. It was a very sturdy machine and had a, a remarkable power supply on it, a ferro-resonant transformer, and they, they boasted that the line voltage could drop to 60% of regular line voltage and you wouldn't lose anything. <laughs> and it was used somewhat in uh, industrial applications. We got one. That's how I learned about Gimmicks, and Gimmicks was the main OS9 user before the Coco in the Chicago area. Was it Richard Don that owned Gimmicks? That's Richard Don, yeah. Bobby Phillips was the designer. And Frank Hogg was the provider of software. The competing computer was the smoke signal computer. The first 6800 computer was Southwest Tech, SWTPC, mm -hmm. Southwest 
Southwest Technical Products. We got a kit for that at the college, and I, I was able to find money in the account. Turn it over to some students who built it. It had a 2K memory board. It was remarkable because it had a, a push button, on-off switch, and a push button, and that's all the controls. All the other hobby computers had a bunch of switches on the front. This one had everything in a ROM. Well, you pushed the reset button, and it popped up on the screen if you had one. So that's what really got us started in the 6800, being we had a lot of teachers from Motorola as well as being just down the road. But the uh, 6809 was touted as specially designed so that it was good for multitasking. And in fact, that's why we got the gimmicks. We had OS9 on a gimmicks computer. We had initially five terminals, and I think we at one time had eight terminals running on that machine in the electronics department. The purpose of it was to primarily to type in short, you know, 15-line assembly programs and then compile them using a piece of software I've forgotten the name of. Dynastar was the WordStar lookalike word processor, and we used that for an editor. But uh, that was a remarkable system, and it worked pretty darn well. You could put everything you wanted to boot into in an EEPROM. So basically, you turned it on and the thing ran. You didn't have to do any boot programs or anything like that, which meant that a part-time teacher could come in, turn on the machine, and have it ready to go. Uh, we had a lot of part-time teachers, some who knew, knew uh, Unix, so they picked up OS 9 quickly, and all of them knew how to how to write code and assemble it. Before we had that, we were ha the, the students were hand assembling, hand compiling little assembly programs. And this was in a course that was in the second semester of a two-year electronics program. When microprocessors came out, my, our faculty talked about what will we do. None of them had studied in school. <laughs> One of them had worked for NCR, a computer company at, at the time. They had a computer. One was an, basically an educator, and one was a PhD from Illinois Institute of Technology in EE. And that was a remarkable trio of, of faculty who were really good at trying to figure out how to meet the needs of a, of a, of a technician, of, of an electronics technician. And they knew they had to do something about uh, the microprocessor. So they developed a course that they taught in the second semester of a four-semester program. And this was at a time when, if you were in the university setting, you probably didn't see a microprocessor in a course until you were in the fourth semester. But uh, they de designed this course for the second semester. And at the end of the course, some of those students were pretty good coders, were able to build on it, added a course that they then took in the fourth semester of the, of the a two-year program. OS 9 was a big part of that because it served uh, students in a somewhat like a professional level software shop in the sense that they actually had an assembler, an editor, and uh, could crank out hex code without doing it by hand. So at the first meeting of the OS 9 users group, a uh, fellow from Chicago I knew the name. His name was uh, Shell Epstein, Sheldon Epstein. And he was the only person who had an ad in the yellow pages of Chicago 
with the word microcomputer or microprocessor in it. Very unusual, very talented guy. He had gone to uh, Columbia and the University of Chicago and had a law degree. But he was working in his own company, writing, uh, developing 6809 OS9 software. One of his major projects was three color touch terminals at a time when those were really unusual devices with uh, instructional programs for kids that they could uh, touch and make work something easy nowadays, but at that time it was very unusual, and those were done for the uh, Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Joe was an unusual guy, and at that meeting, first meeting, I, I saw his name tag, and I said, hi, Sheldon, I'm I'm George Goner. I'm from Chicago, like you are. And he saw on my uh, name tag, Harper College. And his first statement to me was, in general, I hold educators in low regard. <laughs> so uh, that was my first exposure to Shell. I, I learned to know him very well, and we became very good friends. Never did like much uh, about my education background, but uh, we, we got along because we both liked OS 9. Later, I believe his son actually worked in uh, Des Moines at Microware for a period of time. He donated a Rakel Vedic modem, which was an expensive item, a couple hundred bucks, I think, at that time or more. He donated one to the users group and the idea was to develop a bulletin board system written in OS 9 that everybody could use. Well, there was some sort of glitch, some sort of uh, inconsistency between the uh, serial port and OS 9, and that never was realized. Gimmicks offered to house it at their facility in Chicago. That was never realized because of the inability to address this problem that when, uh, when the serial port hung up, there was no way to reset it remotely from a keyboard. Consequently, since you weren't going, to, weren't going to have someone minding the store for the bullet board system the entire time, you really couldn't put a bullet board system up um, with that problem. As a result, <laughs> students at my college wrote a bullet board system. They wrote a system in BASIC, and we put it up, and we called it OSNINE. It was used by people all over the country. But there also was a substantial CompuServe account, and there also was a Delphi account. So there was a lot of correspondence between OS9 users really all over the country. And OS9 was used abroad pretty much as well. The users group at one time had over 600 members, maybe more. We had a software library of 38 five-inch diskettes. We charged five bucks, typically, and I often got those orders and sent the things out, and boy, I sent them all over Europe and all over the country. So it was pop very popular for a while. And when the cocoa came on, of course, there was great interest. And I, th I think a lot of folks got in on those. First of all, anybody who had one at work, had used uh, OS 9 at work, was delighted to be able to get it on the, on the color computer. And I believe there was a substantial amount of traffic um, between uh, Cocoa users and other OS9 users on all three of those opportunities of communication. One of the 
names I remember being associated with the OS9 users group maybe a little later in that era was a guy by the name of Brian Lance, L-A-N-T-Z. Oh, Brian Lance, heaven, yes. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned his name. He was he was very, very prominent in programming and activities. Kevin Darling, I think, yep. was the last president. That's right. I think, Bozzi, I think you were around at that time. I came in after that, yes, yeah. You did. Kevin uh, Darling was before me. Uh, Kevin Darling, I think, was around 1989 in that era. I think that's right. That's right. Well, I believe he was president when the when the group uh, folded. There was a great local support for OS9. I found a page here from 1992. How many members of the local OS9 users group do you suppose there were? Well, there were 108. And I can tell you that getting a, a club of any size, of any type, these days with 100 members is pretty tough. <laughs> Uh, all sorts of hobby groups are having a hard time keeping membership up. I guess everybody's spending time on their smartphones <laughs> or streaming video, but that was a very active group and uh, all sorts of interesting people. There was a professor from Illinois Institute of Technology who was using OS9, actually on a cocoa, in x-ray crystallography. Uh, there was a medical doctor who was an intern and was using it in a research situation. I believe that was also on a cocoa at Northwest, uh, Northwest Hospital, Northwestern Hospital downtown. So it was an interesting group. There was a uh, fellow who played cello. He gave a talk on his use of the cocoa. He had memorized the first address of many subroutines. And in his lecture, he would say things like, so you sent everything to SC3D, Nobody but him knew what SC3D did, <laughs> but he had many references. He had memorized all of these addresses uh, as uh, the leading line in a subroutine that did something he wanted to talk about. I asked him, David, what do you use a cocoa for? He said, well, I use it in my astrology. <laughs> huh. I use it to construct my astrology charts. So my point simply is there were a lot of interesting and unusual folks and talented folks in that OS9 users group, many of them with COCOs. Tell us a little bit about your, your math and your uh, teaching career. I, I went to a liberal arts college as a math, as a physics major and switched to a physics math major. Uh, my first computer experience was at Purdue University in the summer of 1958. And I took a course, a dual-level course, would have been a graduate course or an undergraduate course, on numerical methods. And the teacher was gung-ho computer person for the university. There was a, an assembly-type language that he would write up when he was talking about Newton's method and finding roots or some such mathematical method. And he would write this little assembler program. There was a graduate student from physics in there, and one day he asked a question, when you do this, what happens to that register? And the, the teacher looked at him and he thought, he said, you know, I don't know. He said, I'll tell you what, let's go over and see. So, so we marched over, you know, the class had about eight people in it. The class and the professor marched over to the computer center at Purdue University, walk into the computer room. Uh, he says to the operator, can we use a computer a minute? Sure. 
He goes over, he flips switches, reads out what happens to that register, and we went back to class. <laughs> Imagine that happening in any university center, any computer center, anywhere, where you could go yeah. and interrupt what was going on to check how a, a certain instruction worked. Amazing. Uh, so the first course I took, there were no credit courses in computers at Purdue and uh, at that time. Got my master's at Purdue and from uh, 62 and 63. And there was a six-week evening course in Fortran. Engineers would go and sit. I went and sat. And it used a famous book on Fortran that everybody studied Fortran from, soft cover book. That was the only way you could learn programming at Purdue at the time. And Purdue is you know, terrific computer center now. Four years later, my roommate was a senior in civil engineering. He had to do a computer program. He had to go over in the middle of the night to type, to punch cards, to submit, because there was such a demand on the computer system. He could only he could only get to a key punch in the middle of the night. So four years later, we had a student at the college where I was teaching who went to Purdue, and she came back at uh, Christmas, and I said, how's everything there? Wonderful. I said, uh, what are the computer facilities? She said, oh, we've got terrific computer facilities, but you have to sign up to use it because there's such a demand on it. So at that time, everything was changing very quickly in the universities, but the demand was just enormous. When I started in my job at Harper College, the first summer I went to the math meetings, which were at Dartmouth. Well, Dartmouth is where BASIC, BASIC was created. When you checked into this convention, they gave you an account on their on the Dartmouth machine. They had ASR 33 teletypes everywhere in the college. So we stayed in the dorms. They were in the halls of the dorms. You, you could sit down anytime, anywhere, and, and log in. They had every manner of program in BASIC and uh, games and whatnot. And it was great fun. That was the first exciting time I had with computers, really. Well, George, I think that's uh, been a good talk. Appreciate your time. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Thank you. Yes, uh, thanks, George. Good, good night, guys. I enjoyed it. I, All right. Uh, good talk. All right. Take All care, right. George. Yeah, thanks, George. Inside this week's Rainbow Magazine, don't miss our exclusive free Cocoa Cat Iron-On. And it's only in the Rainbow, the Color Computer Monthly Magazine. The Rainbow features more programs, more information, and more in-depth treatment of the Tandy Color Computer than any other source. The Rainbow is a pot of gold for your color computer. Pick up yours before they're all gone. All right, Cocoa Cruisers, we have reached the end of Episode 59, the fifth year. And on this last closing thoughts, uh, I thought I'd bring go back to the old times and just have John and I uh, do this segment, just like how we started the podcast five years ago. Hello, yeah. John. Hello, Neil. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It feel like feels, like, uh, feels like the old days. Yeah, I feel like I'm turned upside down coming in at the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's unusual. But yeah, no, it's good to be, um, it's good to have been, made it through our five years. Um I guess we're still going. <laughs> not intended to be a, an announcement of any kind of ending, although five years might not be the worst time to do it, I guess. But uh, I think at least for now, we're still going. Do you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think we're going strong. 
Yeah. Going strong. Tandy Assembly's going along pretty strong. You know, Boise seems to have been pretty excited about being part of the group lately. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And I don't think we let him down. No, no, yeah. With his, uh, <laughs> make sure you keep doing uh, the podcast and don't fade away. That's right. Now, there may be some people wishing we would fade away, but uh, I think, um, well, that that's a thought that uh, might be reciprocated either way. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? In five years, has it been worthwhile? I think the uh, the numbers speak for itself. Well, we definitely have an established audience. The amount of listeners we have, people seem to enjoy the show, so I, I think right there that's uh, worthwhile alone. Well, that's true. It's definitely we've entertained some folks. Um, we've had an outlet for, uh, well, for our own opinions, right or wrong. <laughs> um, I think we've had some influence on the community. I definitely think we brought uh, some new folks into the community. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them maybe wish we could push back, but, <laughs> 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 but um, they may not be um, they may not be super happy with us either. I guess right. Yeah, um, I do think the community has um, a lot more energy in it than, uh, you know, it had five years ago. Although, I mean, that was sort of my point with the podcast was that it didn't feel like we had a lot of energy. But um, exactly. I could dig around and point at, well, this is happening and that's happening. And I don't know. It, it seemed like one thing back then is that there were a lot of things happening, and yet most people didn't know about most of them. Right. Um, do you think that's changed now? I still find a lot of people that will come up and say, Hey, did you hear about this? And said, yeah, well, I mean, we did talk about that uh, two episodes ago or, <laughs> you know, whatever. So maybe people just don't, um, either they don't have a good memory for things or maybe they just don't listen that closely, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not that interesting. <laughs> they haven't caught up you know on a podcast sometimes you know i hear people saying that they're you know they're maybe on episode 25 so they got a little ways to go that's true people do binge and and listen from the past yeah every time i I update the statistics i'm always kind of surprised i mean um you know i sort of expect the last two or three to have to be in a certain range because it's really constant you know it's always about the same rate of of um of uh, downloads for the newer episodes over the first month or two. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, as you go back through the earlier episodes, um, they'll be like, Hmm, that, that went up by 10. That went up by 20. And those yeah, four, those four went up by 15 each. So you can, it's funny how you can like see people crawling through the back catalog. Yeah. And it's good to see. It could be a lot of newcomers too. I'm sure there's some newcomers checking it out. Um, the, uh, the other thing I think we've really helped was uh, Cocoa Fest. I mean, since the start of this podcast, we've got the uh, numbers up. Well, the Cocoa Fest attendance numbers definitely went up quite a bit. And while I'm sure there's uh, at least one other entity out there that will probably try to claim credit for those in the more recent years, I'll, I'll, I'll t- still take credit for, uh, <laughs> yeah. for for the major boost in the Cocoa Fest attendance. Um, and we can arm wrestle with them if we, need, if we have to. Now, of course, Cocoa Fest, of course, is a touchy subject <laughs> this this COVID-19 year where they've yeah. all but canceled the uh, physical event. And then there was 
I think there was still some impetus to have a, a physical event, um, but then somebody decided well, they should have a virtual event, and um, I wonder how that has, you know, if that has taken any of the the steam out from um, people being interested in still having a physical event. Um, I don't know. Some people with with the the viral plague or whatever. Um, some people seem well. Some people seem energized to get out in spite of the plague, and some people seem um, you know, determined to to burrow down as deep as they can and avoid the plague. So I'm not sure where that would leave us. Even if if everything did open up, there might be people that don't want to come. Um, and you know, now that everybody's learned how to use uh, <laughs> video conferencing, right? Um, they're they're probably there's some that are probably happy with what's already happened yeah. uh, in terms of the you know the the attempts at a virtual Coca Fest. And so I don't know. The planning for Coca Fest was not exactly going great to begin with. Um, I kind of wonder, you know. I kind of wonder about how much um, effort is going to be put into having another physical Coca Fest with all this going on. Um, I would love to see one. I would definitely make every effort to get there. And um, but I don't know. I think if you're like me and you prefer f- physical events, you'd better plan on making it to Tandy Assembly uh, on uh, yes, Halloween weekend. Definitely. I think with everybody so, cooped up, I got a feeling Tandy Assembly is gonna be pretty busy. I hope so. It's not a I lot think, of shows right now. Everything's canceled, so. Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, I think the timing is less than fortunate to, with the being the Halloween weekend. Um, hopefully, that's far enough along that uh, most places will have, will be largely open by then. People will be used to getting out and about, and and will be ready to go somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's something to look forward to. For sure. So. Do you think the community has changed um, along with all that? Not just more energy or more incentive to go to Coca Fest, but do you think all those people have brought changes in attitudes and such? Well, I mean, there's definitely a lot more people in the community, that's for sure. I mean, since even when we started this podcast, I mean, the Facebook group alone, uh, it's probably at least doubled. Yeah. So more people think, you have in one area, it definitely changes the dynamic. Yeah. I do think there's there's a change. I think some of the change is it's um the group is more well. I don't mean this to sound I know this will sound not so great, but I don't really mean it that way. But the group is a little more generic or normal. <laughs> yeah. um, meaning we get a lot more people in uh, who say, "Well, here I am. I found my old cocoa, but I don't really want to learn how to do this or that. Can you just tell me?" Or I don't really want to fiddle yeah. with this or that. Can you just give? Can is there a device I can buy that just makes it all work for me? Right. Um, and that's fine, and and I appreciate some of that. But I do think that's a difference in the hobby. It's a different kind of a a different twist to the people involved. Um. <laughs> it is. Yeah. No. It, it, you're almost becoming a, you know a tech troubleshooting at that point. Well, yeah, right. So it's, it's a- um. To me, it was always about a certain amount of technical uh, prowess or technical, you know, whatever, working at a low level on some stuff. Even even if it was to, to boot up a, a child's game, there was a certain amount of, well, I have to make sure the floppy disk goes in and I have to type dir and, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, 
and and you still have to do that, right? Even with the Cocoa SDC, you still have to do some of that. For sure. Um, yeah. But um, just the general attitude of uh, the people that are here, uh, that are involved nowadays, not that they're unwelcome. They're perfectly welcome, perfectly happy to have them. They're just oh, a yeah, little different. Right. That's right. Um, and, um, you know, they're they're probably a little more normal than, <laughs> than the group <laughs> that we had before anyway. Yeah. But um, maybe I'm not all that normal to begin with. So uh, feel it's a little disorienting, you know, a little bit different group. It is. Um, yeah. Kind of weird when you're the guy that, that helped to, to change the group um, and then you feel a little out of place. It's a weird feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's probably been worthwhile if it um, gets more people out to, to real events and um, keeps some of the... Um, the economic benefits, shall we say, you know, it makes it viable to produce certain kinds of items uh, for the for the uh, community, whether, uh, you know, upgrades uh, or um, reproductions or, or you know, alternative controllers and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, my taste in those sorts of things are not the same as everyone else's. There's some things that people get really excited about that I say, ho-hum. <laughs> um <laughs> And there's probably some things that could come out that I'd say, hey, that's really neat. Uh, and some people say, why on earth would you want that? You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but, you know, la vie, right? Say la vie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, anyway, well, does that cover the, cover our journey from the past five years? Um, it's, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's over. I think we're no. No, still planning over. to do this um, for the foreseeable future. The uh, the crew the components of the crew could change here and there. We've added some folks along the way. Of course, we added Mike first, and uh, um, I think that was a pretty good addition, don't you? <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah. I mean, uh, the commercials alone. Yeah, I tell you, he's got and, talent. Uh, of course, we added Boise. He's uh, got his historical bent to him. I think he's been a good addition. He's uh For sure. he's kind of spreading his wings a little bit with his YouTube channel, the Coco Collector. Yeah, and that's cool. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, and, um, he really is a you know he's a Coco historian. I mean, uh, he's he's been around. Yeah, so. he's and he's taking an interest in that stuff longer and and deeper than most. Yeah, that's awesome. And of course, we we did add uh, Ron Klein. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he uh, participated with us for a while. He's been out for a while due to some personal issues. I think he will eventually rejoin us. Um, Let's hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, definitely, so. Ron. He does some cool stuff. He participates. He's got some cool uh, uh, video uh, content related to um, his Cocoa Pie project and whatever. Yeah, and, he, uh, he's a pro at the at emulation. Yeah, the, the Cocoa Pie. Uh, that's amazing. Yep. So sometimes I think our emulation stuff is still a little undershared, but um, hopefully we get Ron back onto the, the to uh, regular appearances, and he can. Uh, that end up better than we've been doing. That'll be cool. Yeah. Anyway, so that's changed a little bit. Um, I used to do a tech segment every month. Now mm, I still do them, but not every month. Well, you were hammering them out there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> like the first 50 episodes or something, I think I'll have one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's um, a lot. You know, of course, it kind of felt like, well, once I got to where I was covering the uses of XXD, I kind of wondered if I was uh, losing anybody. <laughs> Although I have had people say they like that particular one. Um, 
surprising. I, they're probably the one I would predict to be the least uh, enjoyed for m- by most people, but some people do say they like that one. That's the thing. You, uh, you, don't, you never know who's listening, right? Exactly right. Yeah. Well, and so I guess we can't go without mentioning a little bit. You know, we came in, a couple of guys in the community, um, and uh, just wanted something to do an excuse to, to talk Coco a little more often and, you know, promote the the event that we enjoyed going to. And, um, you know, it's our show, so, of course, we shared our opinions because who's else's opinions did we have to share, uh, <laughs> expressed our personalities. And for a while it seemed fine. And then, um, well, without going into a lot of detail, at some point um, somebody got uh, – a little upset about some opinions that someone shared and uh, things kind of went downhill from there and grudges are held. And um, sometimes you have to be a little careful about what you say. <laughs> and, well, and sometimes you don't even know what's going to make somebody angry. Yeah. There's, um, there's, you know, obviously a group associated with another show that has kind of convinced themselves that I'm, either evil or out to get them or both. And I'm not, I really am not. (laughs) That's Um, that's not your mission, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, they have a show, they enjoy doing it uh, every weekend. And I just, you know, I don't want to be part of their show because I got other things to do on the weekend. I'm not a fan of being on video. Um, And I'll be honest, I'm not a fan of a lot of the humor that goes on there. But that's fine. I mean, if they like it, then be part of it. That's be right. happy that you're part of the other show. Mm-hmm. Um, be happy that I'm not on there scolding you for for uh, making jokes that I don't appreciate or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But good Lord, get on with our lives and, and yeah. quit assuming that I'm out to get you or that everything I said is somehow intended to hurt you or make you feel bad or insult you or whatever. Because this is one of those... Sometimes I think we'd all care a lot less about what other people think if we realized how little they're thinking about us at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, just because I say something that you could interpret as being a, an attack on you doesn't mean you ought to because I probably didn't mean it that way. Um, and even if I did kind of mean to tweak you, you guys do nothing but talk about how bad your show is and then laugh it off. Um, you know, other people have senses of humor or not, even if you don't recognize them. So I could well, just yeah. be making a joke. Yeah. All right. That's probably way too far on how, on how far I should go talking about such things, but there it is. <laughs> I said it now deal with it. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think that probably wraps up most of our experience the past five years. Um, maybe in another five years we'll uh, do another uh, <laughs> joint another in, in segment. Yeah. Um, but um, in a nutshell, that pretty much is the uh, the five years. That's our five years. That was a pretty good five years. Yeah. It was nice bringing in a lot of friendly new people, happy people, people that liked us. And then a year or so ago, something snapped, and suddenly a bunch of people that we thought liked us suddenly don't like us and really don't like us. And um, I can't totally explain all of it. Um, I know there's a lot of distrust and anger involved. can't say I never contributed to any of it. Uh, I will say I've been trying to walk away from it. And, yeah, no, I'll admit I do occasionally post something that I think is humorous that I'm sure people think is at their expense. 
but you know, it's not like they don't do it to me. Let me put it that way. <clears throat> the waterfall. <clears throat> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I think we all should just get over ourselves and uh, the feud needs to end. That's right. Anyway, uh, yeah. So, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop now. I'm not gonna touch it anymore. <laughs> At least not today. <laughs> so, um, we'd love to hear your feedback. <laughs> uh, yeah. Feedback at cocacrew.org. Um, we'd like to hear from you, and we'd love to hear from you, no matter what you got to say. Thank you, Neil, for five years of being a partner in crime on this uh, on this podcast. I know uh, five years ago, I think you were kind of shocked that I was trying to recruit you into this. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, hey, <laughs> haven't you done a little audio editing? And you said, yeah, well, I think I could do some of that. <laughs> yeah. So I won't lie. I was surprised uh, when we uh, first talked about this at Copa Fest. Uh, I was like, are, are you serious? Right. Yeah, I'm not sure you even fully understood the idea. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we made the best out. of it. Yeah. We brought on a few other people to help us, and uh, we may do that again in the future. So if you want to be uh, a Coca Crew uh, podcast host, well, you know, start contributing. Maybe we'll notice you, huh? Yeah. But beyond that, thank you, listeners. Uh, 130,000 lifetime downloads of the show documented. Um, and when I say documented, I, th- I always throw that in there because. There's a big chunk of the podcast download history that lost in a fire, shall we say? Um, right. And I just can't—I just don't have numbers for several months, uh, especially the early months. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm pretty sure it's a bigger number than 130,000, but I can't really claim it because I don't know it. Uh, either yeah. way, 130,000 total um, averages about what 21 something, 2100. Um, downloads per episode. That number keeps going up, which because we're getting seems like we're getting more downloads with the newer episodes. Um, so that's uh that's cool and that's impressive. Yeah. Um, and it's very heartwarming. And like I said, it's great to know there's some people out there that appreciate our show. And um, even if we do have a group of uh, <laughs> people in the community that that uh, like we touched on that that aren't entirely happy with us. Um, there's a whole lot more that I think are just that like it's just fine. So that's always good to know too. Yeah, well, for sure. Have we beaten this to death, Neil? I think uh, I think we have. <laughs> it's, uh, I think that's a wrap. All right. Well, let's call this one a wrap. Five years and uh, on to another five years. Exactly. Well, f- folks, that's the end of episode fifty-nine. So um, uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the uh, the outro and enjoy whatever your next listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you're listening to next. You could say you get your free copy of uh, Farfall, Pandemic Edition. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Still available. Get it before I tear it down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Coco forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco.
like there's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance.